the cost and risk of IT failure, best of breed in digital transformation, and the reasons why digital transformations fail. Those are just a few topics that we're going to cover here today in episode number 102 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 102. My name is Eric Kimberling. CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. I'm your host today, and with me, as always, is our co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yes, absolutely. Glad to have you and glad to have the audience here for our second episode of 2023. Still getting settled in the new year here. And one of the uh, things we want to talk about here today, speaking of new year and holidays, uh, that we just previously or recently had is uh, recently there in the United States, there was a, a large outage or disruption or some are calling it a meltdown with one of the United States's largest airlines, uh, which happened to coincide with the holidays. Um, there were some weather related issues that sort of started the dominoes falling with with this meltdown that Southwest Airlines in the United States had. Um, reason I bring this up, though, is because it gave us a, a, an idea for a segment here today or for our hot topics today, we want to talk about the cost of IT failure. Not so much from the perspective of implementation failure, which is a lot of times what we talk about. In fact, we are going to talk about that later in this episode, but more from the perspective of existing technology, just the IT, the legacy technologies that organizations are using. What are some case studies of that technology breaking down and what is the cost and risk of having outdated technology. And Southwest Airlines in the United States is a great case study. We're gonna play you a clip of a video I, I recently recorded, kind of analyzing the situation and giving my perspective on what I think happened there and what I think they could have done differently or what they could do going forward. And also what organizations can learn from that, other organizations can learn from that. So we're gonna play you that clip here in just a second. And then we'll also, after we set up that clip with you, we'll talk about some IT failures and breakdowns uh, other case studies of IT failures and breakdowns with with uh, legacy systems that other organizations have experienced. So that'll be the hot topics for today is focused on uh, some case studies with IT failure. And the second segment, our first guest on the show is going to be Brad Feeks, who's the president of Estes Group, which is a uh, IT consulting company. And he's going to be on the show with us talking about best of breed in digital transformation. So in other words, using multiple technologies to drive your digital transformation versus one single one size fits all sort of ERP or enterprise wide solution. So we're going to talk about the pros and cons of best of breed in digital transformations later with Brad. And then finally, in our third major segment, we will have a discussion around why implementations fail. So we're going to play you a YouTube video that I created several months ago, maybe more than a year ago talking about why implementations fail, what some of the root causes are, and we'll unpack that a bit and talk uh, some more about that. So um, some good stuff here today, but I guess to start, 
we want to um, let's play this clip that of a video I put out on my YouTube channel recently talking about four things that I think happened with Southwest Airlines. And the, and the reason I want to play you this again, even if you're not in the airline industry, even if you're not in the United States, which most of our listeners are not in the United States, um, and even if you 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 think you're in a situation where you're not exposed to this sort of IT risk, we do we want to play you this clip as a way to really unpack and understand what the risks are of using outdated technologies and what you can do about it. So I, that's why I want to set it up with this clip. So let's roll the clip and then we'll come back and we'll talk through uh, some additional case studies as well. In the United States, where I'm from and where Third Stage is based, we have a, a company called Southwest Airlines, which is a, a large low-cost airfare or airline provider here in North America. Um, during the holiday season, they made the news in North America and other parts of the world for having over 13,000 flights that were canceled during the holiday season, leaving tens, if not hundreds of thousands of customers stranded or delayed in their holiday travels. And what's interesting about this situation is just the the dire impact it had and the unmitigated disaster that this overall situation entailed. And as I mentioned at the top of the video, there were 13,000 flights canceled. The a company estimates that there's going to be a three to five percent hit to their earnings in the fourth quarter of 2022, which is very material. That's a big hit to uh, any company. And in addition to that, just to add insult to injury, the company is now facing scrutiny from the United States government, and they're sort of looking into what went wrong and and making sure it doesn't happen again. And as I've dug into this situation and really try to understand it, uh, there's a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal. Thursday of last week, right before the end of the year. And I'll, I'll include a link to that in the description below if you'd like to read the article. But it was published in the Wall Street Journal, a very good article that describes what happened and how it wasn't just weather problems that created these cancellations and these um, delays uh, that were pretty widespread and created a lot of havoc uh, throughout the United States and throughout North America. And the interesting thing about the article is it talks about how Southwest Airlines wasn't the only company that had to deal with bad weather. Every airline in, in the United States had to deal with it because we had particularly bad weather and, and some snowstorms that hit many parts of the world, including Denver here where I'm from. In fact, you can see behind me, there's another one happening right now here today. And the difference though, is that Southwest was more impacted than other airlines. Other airlines, yes, they had cancellations and they had delays and inevitable uh, reactions to, to the weather. But Southwest seemed to have a really big problem that sort of cascaded for days and days on end. In fact, I think they're still trying to recover and, and get used to business as usual. And there's really four key learnings I want to talk about here today, four things that I take away from this and four things that I would do if I were Southwest, Southwest Airlines and four things I would do if I were any organization trying to avoid this sort of problem or this sort of situation. The first thing that, that comes to mind is, is looking at the cost-benefit of replacing your legacy systems. What seems to have happened is Southwest seems to have a culture of low cost, which they are a low cost, low fare airline. So that is their business model is to minimize cost. So it's understandable that they're probably not going to invest heavily in anything. They're, they're probably going to invest where they need to, but they're really trying to find that, that right cost optimization to fit their low fare model. But in this case, what I think the company is going to find is that they're going to spend a lot more money fixing this problem and dealing with the fallout of having bad systems. That's going to cost them a lot more than if they simply would have upgraded their technology. And when you read that Wall Street Journal article, they talk a lot about a, a software they're using called SkySolver, 
which is a reservation software that helps them deal with all the schedule uh, changes or the schedules day to day. And what ended up happening is that the the winter storms were so severe and they created such problems and delays and rescheduling needs for the organization that the system couldn't handle that volume of transaction level. I believe the article says that they could handle up to 300 changes, but it couldn't handle more than that. And they needed more than 300 changes to be able to to deal with all the all the cancellations and reschedules they had to deal with. So they had this software called Sky Solver. Um, they had pretty inefficient operations. As, as more is coming out, it looks as though they had a pretty freewheeling culture, uh, freewheeling business operations that were highly inefficient. And you add to that highly outdated, highly customized technology that couldn't scale for the growth that Southwest has experienced here in the, in the United States. That created a big challenge for them. So the cost of those legacy systems is a lot higher than what Southwest Airlines probably thinks. And so looking at that from a cost-benefit perspective uh, is one way to go about this. And that's something we recommend to our clients is, is understand what the real total cost is of your current legacy systems, what the opportunity costs are, what the risks are, and ultimately what is the cost-benefit of if you, if, if you can mitigate those risks by upgrading the technology and, and having something better. The second lesson or the takeaway here is to really look at how you can scale your operations. So yes, this was partially a technology problem. The technology was limited, it was heavily customized, a lot of challenges with the system itself, but there were also operational issues that created this problem that Southwest Airlines had. Um, they, they had a current you know, limitations with their current processes and, and they didn't really seem to recognize that or didn't seem to quantify what those risks are, back to the previous point about technology. But what Southwest seems to have failed to have done is really defined what their future state operating model needs to be for the growth that they've achieved and the growth they continue to experience. Uh, just to give you a quick backstory, if you're not from the United States, Southwest Airlines is a relatively new airline and they've grown exponentially in over the last several years and they've become a very large player in the space. So I think what happened here is they grew so quickly that their operational model didn't scale to keep up with, with the needs of the company. And I think that's one less here. Now, the other thing that I, that I would add to this too, is that, um, you know, or really a third thing I would say here is that there's also cultural impact. So understanding what, how a culture needs to evolve to keep up with the growth of an organization. We talked about broken technologies, broken business processes and operations, but there's also part of the culture at Southwest Airlines that really, in my opinion, contributed to this problem. When you read that article in the Wall Street Journal, they talk a lot about the freewheeling culture that the company has, and that's something that they're known for. Southwest is known for being kind of a fun airline. They're different, they're not rigid and, and uh, kind of that old school airline mentality. So they take pride in that, and they were very entrepreneurial, high growth, as I mentioned, and that created a sort of freewheeling culture that led to a lot of inefficiencies. And their Southwest is the size of a company now where they need to be focusing more on adding to the recipe of their business. So in other words, not abandoning that freewheeling culture and that entrepreneurial spirit, but starting to inject more structure and efficiency and scale into the organization. And I think that's something that that was a big miss, in my opinion, that the cultural shift and that cultural transition that Southwest should have made by now, and they probably will have to make that transition now, given the, the magnitude of the problems they just experienced. So really understanding the cultural piece of a transformation is something that's very important, or the cultural piece of not just a transformation, but the organization itself and where the organization is going is something that's extremely important. And then the fourth big takeaway I have from this is that 
I think a lot of pundits, industry analysts, and certainly software vendors in the industry will use this as an opportunity to say Southwest should just totally overhaul all their operations or, or all their technologies. Um, they need to replace it all, start from scratch, put in brand new technology, put in a big ERP system or whatever the case may be. And that's the refrain you hear oftentimes from software vendors, especially the big ERP vendors that have a lot of products to sell. They want you to buy as much as they can. And the reason I bring this up is because I don't think Southwest necessarily needs to do a massive overhaul of all their systems right now, because first of all, that's not realistic. They're not going to get that done anytime soon. And it can be overwhelming for any organization to try and replace everything all at once or, or to do that very quickly. But I think what they can learn from this is they they can look at ways that they can make strategic investments in their technology. So in other words, they don't need to go through this massive digital transformation that's going to cost them hundreds of millions of dollars and impose a huge amount of additional risk to the organization when they've just experienced the risk they just did. But what they can do is say, let's really prioritize our technological needs and where the biggest pain points are and start to attack those now and get some quick wins and get some early wins. And then maybe, yeah, you get to the financial and operations or the, or the, uh, the finance and accounting or the inventory management or the procurement or asset management, all these different parts of their business. But it sounds like right now the reservation system is their biggest problem. And so if I were them, I would say, let's go after the sky solver replacement issue Let's figure out how we're going to replace that scheduling and, and reservation system. And then later, yeah, maybe we'll get to financials. Maybe we'll get to a- asset management and that sort of thing. But they don't necessarily need to bite off more than they can chew. They can be very strategic about investing in IT. And I think that's something that organizations could learn a lot from because so many organizations we see in the marketplace tend to bite off more than they can chew. And they, they buy a bunch of technology they don't need. It doesn't add business value. It doesn't fix any particular problem. But it's something they can say is modern technology and yes they've upgraded their technology so while southwest yes they need some pretty significant it overhauls and improvements doesn't mean they necessarily need to throw the baby out with the bathwater or replace everything so i think those are um, some things to keep in mind and that's something that i would recommend to to southwest Airlines. so those are four of the takeaways i had again check out the link below to the wall street journal article I'll also include some links to other materials below that I think will help you in your digital transformation journey and just understanding more about digital transformations and IT initiatives like the one that Southwest Airlines is probably going to be going through in the near future, I would imagine. So be sure to uh, check out some of those resources. Uh, I've included links below. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. All right, so that's a video that I, I recorded shortly after the Southwest meltdown, published it out on my YouTube channel. Um, what were some of your thoughts on that, Kyler? You and I haven't really had a chance to talk about this yet. And that was a video that I just wanted to get out there as quickly as possible. We didn't edit it or anything. I just did it in one take and threw it up on the YouTube channel just to get some thoughts and conversation going. But what, what was some of your feedback from that situation? And I know you've got some other case studies you want to share as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I love that you kind of covered not only the, the technical pieces of it, but also the cultural pieces of the overall identity and who Southwest is as a company. And sometimes the brand can kind of backfire, right, in being too much of that cowboy fun type of culture without the actual infrastructure to ensure that you're delivering uh, a good product. Right. Absolutely. And it, it also, you know, too, I, I think the other thing of that too, is that, you know, that low cost model that they have, I think it seems like it led to some maybe skimping on costs and in not investing in technology the way they should mm -hmm. not to say, and I think I mentioned this in the video too, it's not to say that you should necessarily just go all in on a big, massive transformation, which I think is what where a, a lot of people would take away from that situation is, oh, you just you need know, to replace all your systems. It's not quite that simple. I mean, you want to go after, you know, the, the targeted highest priority areas, in my opinion. So I think that's a, it's a good lesson for a lot of organizations, in my opinion, because I think a lot of organizations tend to sweat their, their assets, if you will, they, they sweat the, the technology for as long as they can sweat it until it breaks. But the question becomes, what does it cost if your technology breaks? And Southwest Airlines is experiencing the pain of that technology breaking, and they're going to pay a pretty hefty price for it too. Absolutely. And I kind of want to dive into a little bit of that compliance. Um, so I saw an, an, another interesting opinion article around it, and I wanted to share a metaphor because we often use the building construction metaphor of building a house in digital transformation. Um, so this author says, it's a bit like constructing a building. If you had the option of not adhering to a strict earthquake or fire codes, or there was no regulation or oversight, it would almost inevitably be cheaper and quicker to skip such necessities. The building might look, feel the same, the experience might be the same to its inhabitants, as long as there's no earthquake or fire. But if there were an earthquake or fire, the debt they would pay would endanger the occupants um, inhabiting the building. So I thought that was a really interesting piece of that because we often talk about the regulation and compliance that we need to achieve in digital transformation projects, excuse me. But sometimes when we have a lack of that standardization or governance, that's when we run into these issues of what actually the service is being delivered and the overall accountability of the brand. Yeah, that's a that's a great um, metaphor. You know, it's it's everything looks fine until it's not until you you have something extremely disruptive. And you know, another example of that just that I think most of us can relate to is just COVID. You know, you had the pandemic a couple of years ago that mm -hmm. totally disrupted a lot of things, a lot of our lives, a lot of our ways of doing business and whatnot. And some of it, a lot of it, has changed permanently as a result. Yeah, I know we've talked in this podcast a lot about supply chain management, how supply chains have had to sort of rethink the way they operate. As a result, but I think it's just a good reminder of the Southwest Airlines situation, COVID. There's other examples we could give: earthquakes, tornadoes. Things happen, and you know the odds might not be greater than fifty percent, or you know, super material, or they may not seem like they're super material. But I think the, it's important to always constantly assess: you know, what is the risk, and what happens if that does materialize? Should we do something about it to hedge against that? Is there is the risk big enough or costly enough? And I think that's where a lot of organizations get stuck. Absolutely. And, and I didn't even realize when you talked about kind of the brokenness of the operations that already existed. And then when a time of high stress or urgency or high volume, as you mentioned um, in that video of transactions, it completely breaks. So if you have a weak system in place, and one example I found of that, um, and I didn't know this, maybe that you, you do um, in having a background in kind of airline operations, 
But say if a flight is going from Buffalo in the United States to Denver, where third stage is is, um, based, if we have a flight crew that their flight was canceled and then the Denver flight, you know, that snowballs because they don't have a crew to do that. One of, I guess, the biggest breakages and operations that Southwest has historically had is the overall management of their crew. So, for example, if you're on that crew, sometimes you were left on hold. You had to manually call up the the corporate airlines and say, hey, I'm on the crew from Buffalo to Denver. I'm not going to get there. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And some were left on hold for three, six, seven, even 17 hours at one point to get their hotel rooms arranged and um, and just the the overall breakage of that coordination, because that can be the biggest issue is actually having the resources, pilots, crew to actually have the, the flight take off. Um, so that was an interesting peep piece of information that I found that I thought really kind of gave the example of the broken processes that you mentioned and the need for really an evaluation of business operations from an IT process standpoint uh, and being able to showcase those points of weakness before they truly do break in a really embarrassing and um, expensive, as we've seen with this, way. Yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to see if they change their business model in addition to revamping their technology because you, what you're touching on is sort of a, a business model issue. So the getting back to your, your example of the cruise and, and if, if one um, one plane is canceled, that that cascades into other issues because now the crew can't get to where they need to go. One of the problems that Southwest Airlines has, and actually I failed to mention this in the video, I, pr- I should have mentioned it in the video clip, um, but like I said, I did a one take and I wasn't going to go redo it again <laughs> after that. But um. Fair enough. <laughs> and I also, I also filmed it on a holiday too, so I just felt the need to just crank it out. Um, yeah. But what I was going to say is they, they've they got a couple of nuances of their business model that really contributed here. One is that they don't have a hub and spoke system like most airlines do, where they have like a couple central metropolitan uh, airports where all the flights are going in and out of. They have more of a decentralized approach. So, so that creates a lot of issues with scheduling because now it's not, you know, if your crew, in your example, if your crew got got uh, a flight got canceled, it's more likely to create problems in the Southwest model because it's so decentralized. It's not like they got stranded in a hub and now you can put them on a different flight or whatever. Um, now they're stuck somewhere else and you've got to figure out how to get them to where they need to go. And the same with pilots too, even in normal situations, they had something in the article that I refer to in the video. Um, they talk about how Southwest is known for using something called deadheading where they basically send a pilot out to start his or her flight somewhere else than where he's based. So, you know, if I'm a pilot, I'm based here in Denver, but I've got to get to New York city because I'm going to fly from New York to whatever city from there. I'm just going to take a one-way flight basically to New York to get my flight to wherever I need to go. And Southwest does that a lot, which creates a lot of scheduling complexities, which creates a lot of inefficiency and manual processes. And now you throw on outdated technology on top of that. Then you throw on a weather, you know, a disastrous weather scenario and it all just snowballs, uh, pardon the pun, uh, for for uh, issues that they that they had there. So I, I think you're absolutely right. So I have a question for you that might be an unpopular opinion, but I feel like you're the perfect person to answer this question, honestly, because 
I fundamentally think the issue with kind of this duct tape approach that you're talking about when it comes to technologies, not at a piece where you're actually going through a mindful evaluation, you're addressing breakages in a phased approach and being strategic about it, but where you're actually putting kind of duct tape processes, you have these manual processes that we kind of just covered in this case study. Is it the fault of the corporate executives whose compensation is often tied to things like stock prices, earning statements? Is is it hard as those executives to look at this type of large business model and say, I'm not going to spend that amount of money on a new technology implementation because it might it might affect my bottom line. Does that biases exist? I think it does in in many cases, especially publicly traded companies, just because to your point, if they're compensated based on stock price, stock prices are notorious for being very short-sighted. Investors are pretty short-sighted, you know, as far as not necessarily investing for long-term results, but more quarterly, quarter by quarter results. So I think there is a pressure that's probably more evident in, um, in publicly traded companies, but you see it even in private, private companies and, uh, public organizations as well, nonprofits, that sort of thing, government, you see it there too. It's just, a, I think it's a lot of it's an adversity to change or in, in the case of Southwest and other organizations we see, I think it's also a, a misunderstanding of what the risk is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in Southwest case, I think, you know, it's easy to play armchair quarterback and or Monday morning quarterback, whatever you call it. Um, and look back and say, well, they should have done this, this, and that, because now we know what we know. So I acknowledge I am doing that to some degree. But in the case of, you know, as we unpack that, um, their technology situation at Southwest and how they have, um, you know, they could only handle, I think, up to 300 changes or something like that at any given time, but they had a lot more changes at the schedule they had to do as a result of the snowstorm. Something, I mean, it seems like they would kind of know that there's probably going to be a day where we need more than 300 changes and we should probably do something about that or else we could have something catastrophic. So I, I think it's it's probably more that, in my opinion. I think it's more of a blind spot that that organizations have. There is some short-sighted financial incentive to not invest in technology at times, but I think it's more, uh, even more fundamental is just they just don't understand how severe the risk is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's a, a great case study. There's one other airline that I want to talk to you about and get some of your feedback on um, when it comes to overall IT failures, and that's British Airways. So British Airways not only had issues over the holidays, but they also are notorious for having IT outages and delays. Um, So in a statement they put out similar to the Southwest models um, for the holidays for the 19th and 20th, which were some of the busiest uh, December holidays travel, uh, they said our flights are Our flights due to depart to the U.S. tonight are currently delayed to a technical issue with our third-party flight planning supplier. We are urgently investigating this information. So that's what they put out. Um, The short-haul flights were not impacted when it comes to people traveling around Europe, but the long-haul flights were. More than 75,000 passengers were were impacted by another IT issue in 2017, where the company's data center suffered an outage, um, and that actually led to a litigation um, where they sued their data center operator um, as well. And then 2019, they had another outage um, that affected 15,000 passengers um, due to another IT interconnected service 
um, issue. So the thing I want to ask you about that is there's so many different softwares that a lot of times get blamed or different vendors that get blamed in the IT um, umbrella when it comes to canceling flights. Is there one key operational issue when it comes to using third party suppliers? And that's the data center's fault. And then it's the, you know, it's the other um, company that they're they're using as some sort of partner. Is there ever a responsibility that needs to fall within the airline for that project management piece uh, that or that overall IT um, oversight or governance piece that that we should be holding these airlines accountable to? I do, and I and actually I, I would expand that your comment or question to not only apply to airlines but just organizations in general. If you know every organization has some sort of third-party provider that's doing something for them that you could blame if things go wrong and, and you should blame them if things go wrong. But at the end of the day, your customers don't care that you had a third-party provider and it wasn't your fault. Um, you know, presumably it wasn't your fault. It was your third-party providers. Your customers don't care. They they just know that you failed as an organization. And I think that's the way to, way to look at it. Speaking of flying, this is just something that, um, I thought of as we were talking about airlines, it, it kind of reminds me of sometimes, have you ever been on a flight where you have the pilot that says we landed, you know, we, we landed early, but we can't get to the gate. We're, we're stuck at the gate. We can't get to the gate for 30 minutes. We're going to be, we're going to, we're still on time, but we just can't get to the gate. So you're welcome for getting you here on time. And I always get frustrated when I hear pilots say that, because I think you, we're not here on time. I'm sitting on a plane at an airport. I'm not at the gate off the plane. Like that's to me on time. And it's that sort of same sort of mentality. It drives me crazy when pilots blame, you know, the crews or whatever. I don't care. Yeah, you 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 did your job. You flew me to the city, but you didn't get me to the gate and off the plane in time. So it's the same kind of thing. You have to look at your customer experience and what what they perceive, and know that you have to do something as an organization to make sure that you aren't compromising that or undermining it. So that's a long way of saying yes. I agree with you. Yeah. No, I totally agree. A lot of times uh, our family lives in the Grand Junction area, which Colorado is the size of uh, most of Europe, the states here in the United States. So we take a regional flight to Denver and many times the regional flight, will the pilot will get on and say, we can't land because they're not ready for us. It's like, did they not know that we were coming? Like, is that right? Yeah, <laughs> how did that happen? So that was a preventable problem. But again, um, operational issues. I'm sure it's easy for us um, to say all of those different things, but it sounds like this is an industry that will go under a lot of scrutiny when it comes to not only um, national compliance, which is something that's obviously been a call to action um, for legislation here in the United States, but just a lack of overall compassion when it comes to customers. They're fatigued when it comes to airlines. There's little things that people like doing less than going to an airline, getting on a plane and actually traveling to their destination. It's not a trusted industry. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, kind of how that evolves over time when it comes to the regu regulations around it. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it seems like there's probably some regulatory stuff forthcoming, at least in the United States for, for Southwest Airlines, just based on the way they're talking right now. So we'll see. Absolutely. Well, I want to share a few other fundamental IT failures outside of the airline industry just to get your feedback on them. So these are some of the, the most influential specific information technology failures that we've seen on high caliber, high visibility businesses. So one of those is I want to talk about um, Citibank. So to give you kind of 
the wrap up of, of how the story unfolded, Citibank was attempting to send uh, an $8 million interest payment on behalf of Revlon, which we've talked about kind of the Revlon um, overall digital transformation failure before. If you haven't seen that, definitely go to Eric's YouTube channel. You can search it and um, get that whole drama and saga as well. So during that, um, there was a piece of in-house Citibank software that was a particularly really clunky, dirty process, if you will. Citibank's employees had to set up a transaction if they were paying off the whole loan so that the interest could be calculated correctly, then check multiple boxes in order to send a bulk payment to be to the international Citibank account with the interest portion that goes to the creditors. So stay with me here. <laughs> Despite the fact that three different stakeholders that have signing authority at a, a global bank signed off on this transaction for Reblon, it went through without the proper boxes checked and a 900, and 900 million, most of which wasn't due until 2023 was sent out. And mind you, this was in 2021. So obviously a huge mishap on just the overall processes and the technology um, front. So that was benefiting the party that usually return, returns the money in um, bake errors to the company that made the goof. But this time around, things went differently and the money was sent out to various hedge funds um, in in terms of the loan. So they actually had to go to litigation and renegotiate Revlon's loan. So obviously a huge issue there when it comes to user experiences um, and IT and IT processes uh, when sending obviously a, a multiple amounts of money. So interested to hear your reaction to that, that um, overall mishap on the behalf of Citibank and Revlon. Poor Revlon, just can't catch a break, man. I know they struggled in their own digital transformation and then they suffered from someone else's uh, digital transformation as well. Um, but yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a big miss. And that, you know, again, the, the whole theme here, the reason we're talking about this stuff is because we've spent a lot of time in the show talking about failures during the deployment of new technologies, which that in and of itself is a challenge and that's a big risk. But what about the systems you already have? Because a lot of times organizations think it's going to be super risky to change systems. And it is, but oftentimes that risk isn't nearly as great as if you just stay with your broken systems you have now that create problems like this that we saw with Citibank and Revlon. So, you know, it just gets back to, um, you know, first of all, not necessarily even just having to replace all of your technologies if you have a broken process or some of the transactions are breaking down, but, but knowing that you're constantly testing and improving those processes and technologies too. So even if you don't go through a digital transformation, you should at least still be testing and, and applying new scenarios as your business changes, making sure the technology keeps up with the business changes. I don't know in this case with Revlon and uh, Citibank, how that happened, if that was a new piece of code that they introduced and it somehow screwed up the whole, you know, the whole series of transactions or, or if it just hadn't been tested in a certain way that it should have, I'm not sure of the background, but um, the, you know, that's, it's it, back to your earlier question. It's, it's the, it's your business, you're running it. You can't just blame IT or blame your systems. Um, you've got to make sure that you've you foolproofed all that stuff to make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Yeah, and that case study with Citibank is interesting because it's not only a technical component, but also a human error, right? Three different humans, to be exact, had to yeah, sign off definitely. on that. So we even talked about the importance of that balance between human and technology, but obviously it was a miss on on both on both fronts for for this specific case study. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the human piece, obviously, we don't want to 
we can't go through a whole episode or a whole segment of this show without talking oh, about change management, the human piece, but uh, making sure that you're constantly training and constantly, you know, not just deploying new technology and new processes, training people, and then you're done, you move on. It's more constantly training people and tightening up the ship, especially as the business operations and the business model changes and evolves over time. Absolutely. Um, another one I want to talk about specifically from the compliance standpoint and how hard it is to to actually legitize, I don't even know if that's a word, but create legislation around is, um, processes. And, yeah, word. right. It is now. It is now. <laughs> um, it's new New year, new words. So in 2019, the Arizona state legislator passed a law to allow certain inmates, prison inmates, that were convicted of nonviolent offenses to complete a programming that would accelerate their release. Um, unfortunately, whistleblowers told the overall public in February of, of 2021 that the software that keeps track of the prisoner's eligibility still hadn't been updated to accommodate this new law. Um, so while the state insists that eligible prisoners can and do have their sentence recalculated manually, the truth is that many of them may not know if they're eligible for release or don't have advocates outside um, pressing for their case. So there's several reasons for this IT issue here. One is the importance of kind of building flexibility into any sort of government system. And the other is software isn't just software. It, it can have profound impacts on human lives. Another level of this overall legislation is there were issues on actually prisoners being released early because of the data cleansing issues that it wasn't clean. So essentially there wasn't enough data in the system to showcase that a prisoner was dangerous or they weren't dangerous and they were actually released early. Uh, the third layer of it, which, you know, if it can't get scarier, it always does. The software is responsible for unlocking and locking some cells. And there were glitches in which the cells would be unlocked and prisoners would be able to walk freely throughout the prison. Um, and these, again, were due to information technology and software issues that weren't showcased or tested in a very high stress environment. Obviously, that could have big consequences um, if that isn't something that is regulated. Um, so another issue of there was legislation, but our businesses and overall different organizations utilizing and being audited on on those different legislation um, requirements. So wanted to get your feedback on on that one. Yeah, well, it, it's uh, we have some interesting case studies here, I suppose, with, you know, airlines not being able to transport people the way they need to and uh, banks screwing up people's money and now. Uh, prisoners getting out of prison as, as a result of technology glitches. Um, obviously, we're focusing on case studies where the stakes are really high for, for society and for customers yeah. as well. And I think, you know, in those cases, you know, in these extreme cases, you you look at it and you think, how did they not know that? It sounds like these problems probably existed at the time they rolled the technology out and maybe they just didn't realize it or didn't expose those challenges. But I think it's the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, when you think about testing and, uh, you know, making sure you understand and run through all your scenarios when you're deploying new technology, you want to make sure you've you've done that. Um, and even after you've implemented new technology, you constantly want to be, you know, testing new scenarios and new exceptions, new, you know, new business processes that they get rolled out to the organization. You want to test that within the technology and make sure you, you, you vet all that out. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff for sure. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, the last one here um, I want to cover, and then we can kind of move on, is much less scary, right? But still um, significant. So it has to do with um, Amazon's internal process for offering various types of leaves to its employees. And this is actually stems from a New York Times investigation around a litany of horror stories that affected just both blue and white collar workers alike in employees being fired or not even showing up to work on their approved leave. Um, new mothers lacked paychecks on maternity leaves, all kinds of different injured workers, disability, uh, those types of things that didn't line up with what was actually in the leave policy. So this was kind of a too many cooks in the kitchen scenario. It turns out that Amazon manages its leave system through using a multiple software products from a variety of different vendors and a legacy of rapid growth. Um, so what happened here is like the Arizona prison system, Amazon tried to make up for the IT dysfunction with human labor. So 67 full-time employees that are dedicated to inputting data on employee leave, which the job was so stressful that many ended up needing to take leaves of absence themselves, ironically. So this is a, a system where you have a lot of technical debt because you have a lot of different systems working together, but it's in affecting one of your most valuable assets, which is your human resources. Um, and then off often creating risk around any sort of employee litigation um, or issues of that front. So is there too much systems sometimes, or what would your be your recommendation if you saw a client kind of in this situation? Yeah. I mean, there, there uh, you can definitely overcomplicate things with technology as much as technology vendors will tell you that their software is always going to, streamline your process and make it, you know, provide better data and make you more efficient, all that stuff. It doesn't always, sometimes it just, if it's not a good fit for what your needs are, it's going to create more friction and uh, tension and headwinds in your operations. And so technology is not always good, despite uh, the fact that we're in the technology industry. And a lot of people here listening are in the technology space. Technology sometimes can be bad and it can backfire. So I think, you know, just Getting back to the, you know, one of the points I made in the, the clip we rolled earlier in the segment, um, making sure that you are strategic and selective about where you deploy technology, I think is a good thing. I've, I've already seen a couple of videos, by the way, um, or a couple of blogs or tweets, you know, things related to the Southwest Airlines thing, just not to keep beating that dead horse, but it's relevant here too. But it was, some of the comments were, they need to go through a digital transformation. They need to overhaul their technologies. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, every organization, you could probably make that argument. They need to overhaul their technologies, but the reality is most organizations aren't going to do it. They're not going to do it anytime soon. So how do you do it in a way that is more selective and really attacks the problems and is strategic and all that stuff at the same time? So, um, so yeah, I agree. I, th I think, uh, I mean, that's, that's uh, one way to look at it as well. Absolutely. Well, well, speaking of um, Southwest, if you need any help, we know some people that do digital transformation consulting um, and can help you just, you know, telling you for a friend. But um, right. in all seriousness, I, I think the the importance of requirements and strategy is something I know you dive into when you talk with Brad Feeks about best of breed versus a whole ERP suite and what that looks like um, kind of moving into 2023. So definitely really excited to hear from him, a repeat guest and a, a great friend of third stage here. Um, so it should be a, a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And it and it's a, actually a good um, um, it, it ties in nicely with this, this idea of if you have outdated legacy systems, you've got all this technical debt, you're trying to 
replace, it can be overwhelming. I think if I just speculate, which I am speculating, if I just speculate, I'd say with Southwest Airlines and some of these other case studies we talked about, they probably were overwhelmed by the idea of having to replace their technologies. You know, how do you, where do you start? And, you know, it's going to be risky. It's going to be costly, all that stuff. The beauty of best of breed, which we're going to talk about here in the next segment, is that you can do more targeted, more point solutions that can solve immediate problems. In some cases, deliver more immediate business value. There's certainly trade-offs. There's a downside to it as well, but that's what we're going to talk about. So we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have Brad Feeks, who's the CEO of Estes Group. He'll be on the show with me talking about best of breed. Very smart guy, very entertaining guy. So be sure to stick around for that. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 102, our second episode of the new year here in 2023. I'm excited for our next guest who's going to be on the show with us talking about best of breed. And for those that don't know, best of breed is essentially a way of describing a digital transformation that involves multiple technologies rather than just one technology that applies to the entire enterprise. And this has been an age-old debate. Uh, it's a philosophical debate that I don't think will ever get settled anytime soon. Um, there's a school of thought that says you should have one single ERP system to tie together all of your operations and data. There's another school of thought that says one single system can't be everything to everyone, so therefore you should go best of breed. And there's another school of thought that says you should probably be somewhere in the middle. So what we thought we'd do here today is talk about best of breed and talk about what some of the pros and cons are. And uh, joining me for this discussion is Brad Feeks, the president of a company called Estes Group. And I'll let him describe his background and his company here in a moment. But in the meantime, Brad, thanks for being here today. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me, Eric. Always good to be back. Yeah, love having you on the show. And we always have great conversations here, not to set the bar too high, but really excited to, to have you here. And uh, I look forward to, to diving into some of these topics here. Um, I guess before we jump into this whole concept of best of breed, though, maybe talk a little bit about you, yourself, your background, as well as what Estes Group does, the company that you work for and are the president of. Sure, sure. Uh, first off, just seeing where everyone's from. Let me tell you where I'm from. Uh, born and raised Winnipeg, Canada. Spent the last 25-ish years living in central Wisconsin. My company is out of Loveland, Colorado, but I am coming to you today from uh, somewhere just north of Irvine, California. So I got four places. So try to beat that. Um, Estes right. Group, uh, headquartered in uh, Loveland, Colorado, used to be out of Estes Park, Colorado. And then Estes had a flood and we kind of washed downstream. So we, just, we landed in Loveland. Uh, we're an ERP-based company. 
Um, not so much a system integrator. That's, that's kind of our roots, but we do less and less of that these days. We're focusing more and more on uh, application deployment. Uh, a lot of private cloud uh, deployments of ERP systems. I think um, we talk about SaaS and cloud in the industry as a big deal. And what I'm finding is a, a significant number of ERP systems still are deploying themselves in private cloud models. Uh, that is kind of that single tenancy mo mode. And so that's kind of where uh, us as an organization we focused on is on private cloud, single tenancy deployments of, of uh, ERP solutions. Okay, great. Yeah. And Estes is a company that um, I've, I've known you for quite some time and known the organization for even longer, I, I think. Um, so it's good, good group of people there that you've got and interesting to see your business model evolve as the industry evolves as well. Um, I guess just to start, you started, you started to scratch the surface of this, this question here, but maybe we could dive a little bit more into it here, but maybe just to start, maybe just if we back up, start with the basic fundamentals, what, a, what does best of breed mean? I mean, I think there's a, it's a pretty vague term. It's, it's mm -hmm. oftentimes misused. But how would you describe or simplify that concept for those of us that may not know? Well, let me tell you how I came to the subject myself. This would have been the mid aughts. We were uh, I was working for a company, uh, kind of a holding company that was implementing Epicor ERP across the entire branch. This was a company about six or seven hundred million. So it was going to be a pretty big implementation. So I was diving into the literature. Uh, we were coming off of Bond 4 at the time. Pretty good system for what it was. Um, and so it was a big shift from Bond to Epicor. And I was uh, in the midst of just trying to figure out ERP itself. I had been uh, an ERP user without really being an ERP understander, if that's a, a coinage that I can get away with. And so I was going through technology evaluation centers. I think they're still around, diving through all their articles. At the time, they seemed like the best um, in that space for expositing uh, various different ERP systems and their implications. And one of their concepts that they beat on really hard was this idea of, a, of an integrated solution versus a best of breed. And they went back and forth about the pluses and minuses. And that's where my head kind of got into there because I was coming essentially from two <clears throat> integrated solutions in the purest sense. Um, this again was in the, you know, in the early aughts where our technological platforms were very different than they are now. So the whole context of the conversation has changed so markedly from that time. Um, so if I talk about best of breed, they're very long introduction for a very short answer. I think of it best of breed, there's kind of, again, there's, there's kind of a capital B and there's a lowercase b. Let's talk about the capital B. So the capital B is uh, uh, people who advertise an integrated system saying you need a single point of truth. You need that single database that you can report against that everybody it's kind of it's kind of the tech time for the organization right it's keeping everybody on time with a single common set of goals data etc now a best of breed approach says well there's a better way to do it you're better off taking the best possible functionality from each individual domain that you work in whether it's production management inventory management purchasing e-commerce quality management taking all the best possible functional components and kind of patching them together in order to create your best possible enterprise solution for your organization. Um, so it becomes very decentralized. You don't have a single point of authority because each of these areas masters their own domain. But what you have instead of that is the most robust functionality possible in each of those areas. So I'd say if I were to summarize kind of the hard case for best of breed, that's how I would describe that, that coming out of the gate. Yeah, that's a great, great overview. And it's, it's almost, um, I almost view this best of breed concept as, as 
like talking about politics. You know, it's something that's never really going to get settled. It feels like, you know, mm-hmm. when you think about is best to breed better or having. Well, Eric just fell off the live stream here. Oh, there you go. You, you, you oh. disappeared for a second, Eric. So I just kept talking. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Yeah. There seems to be a connection issue. Hopefully we can, uh, hopefully it st- sticks around here for us. But um, what I was going to say is that the, the best of breed concept um, oftentimes, you know, it's sort of like a pendulum swinging back and forth. You know, there's, there's pros and cons on either side, but best of breed seems like it'll always be a viable option simply because of what you mentioned, which is the mm-hmm. sort of the robust functionality that's specialized in one area or one industry, whatever it is. And so while the big guys or the single solutions are trying to be everything to everyone, you've got best of breed providers that aren't trying to be everything to everyone. They're just trying to tackle and attack one problem and do it really well and do it better than the other. So I think that's the sort of, that's why I equate it to politics. It's almost like there's tension on both sides. There's pros and cons on both sides. And there's, there's purists on both sides and people mm-hmm. that feel strongly one side or the other. But in reality, there's, there's a lot of trade-offs on, on either. Yeah, um, I think so. I think the idea of the political metaphor works really well because you kind of have, you know, the wackos on either side of the bell curve and the rest right. of us are actually centrists. Right. Um, so right. you take um, you take the idea of I gave you kind of the the extreme position on one side. There's also what I call the lower case uh, best to breed with a lowercase b. And that's more of a, a situation where you have a central ERP system. It's just the fact that you're willing to bolster that and replace certain areas with that with uh, best of breed functionality. So let's take a since I'm coming from an Epicor world, let's say you have Epicor and you want to use an e-commerce solution uh, to front end that because you do a lot of B2B work. So you end up uh, purchasing an, an, ER or an e-commerce system and integrating it with your core system. You'd still consider that a best of breed, but now it's it's not a decentralized best of breed. So that might be one, one concept there, centralized versus decentralized best of breed, because you still and it really affects the way you would configure your third-party apps because now you're still you're relying on that third party to assume that that part master record and it, and probably like customer price lists for instance would reside in that main central hub that's still your your single point of truth that everything else is working around i've honestly i've seen solutions that are built around the lowercase b especially in e-commerce where the e-commerce provider says, well, I don't want to have an item master. I want the ERP system to have an item master. And I want to work off of that item master. That's kind of a, a paradigm. I think that's evolved in a lot of areas lately. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point that, you know, even, even organizations that maybe are shying away from or leaning away from a best of breed model and they think they want a single, you know, single system, single ERP system, whatever it may be, Usually, even they end up having some sort of best of breed solution, just because it's so hard to find and deploy a system that can do everything you need it to do. Yeah, and, well, uh, to your- and the truth is, the ERP vendor is truly giving you a best of breed system more often than not. Because yeah. so, what are what are best of breed uh, systems happen inside of an ERP vendor? Uh, quite often, you'll have third party solutions that a vendor will like so much that they'll buy it. And now they'll license it and they tell you it's all one comprehensive system. But no, it's truly two systems that are integrated on the back end. So you truly, even if you go through a single vendor, there's a really good chance that you're implementing some form of best of breed solution or in my parlance, a hybrid cloud, right? Where you have independently installed applications that need to be connected and interacting that may be living on different um, deployment platforms. So you end up with a best of breed quite often, whether or not you like it. Yeah, that's a great point. And you look at, you know, look at the largest ERP vendors in the space. Obviously, you guys um, have a uh, heavy, heavy emphasis on Epicor, among other systems. 
Uh, but we look at some of the other vendors as well, like Microsoft, Oracle, uh, Infor, you know, they've grown up by largely by acquiring other systems. And, you know, over time they struggle with, well, how do we make this less of a best of breed and more of a single integrated solution? In some cases, you know, some vendors are doing better than others. And even SAP, who historically had grown more through Greenfield developing their own products and their own integrated suite of products, even they have been out on an acquisition spree in recent, you know, over the last decade or so. You know, as they bought Ariba and Concur and Success Factors and other point solutions that they really are buying to shore up some of the weaknesses of their core solution. So I, I think it's a great point that most of the large vendors, if not all of them, are they really are best of breed. They're trying not to be, but they they are. And even if you have a greenfield solution that truly is integrated, you still have individual modules within that system that you've got to figure out how you're going to integrate and how the data is going to flow. So you have a lot of the complexity that best of breed entails you, you still have that with with the single ARP system model in many cases as well yeah i think that's pretty common that even with core modules say purchasing an inventory uh you'll always run into users who aren't entirely happy with how epa uh, the vendor chose to integrate those models uh under the sheets and even so even when you're not dealing with um connected models but you know the same code set all those same questions exist right all the different paradigms that say how does an item flow from this module to that module how do what happens when it moves from a purchase order to a, an inventory record um, all of those things are, are decisions that companies have to make and we're always living with those decisions whether or not it's in a best of breed context or a core module context yeah absolutely just turning to the audience here uh kyler who's my podcast co-host uh, makes a comment that that was a two beer question. So um, she's uh, she's coming in hot into the new year. I see that uh, with I see with that. with beer with beer on her mind uh, still. Uh, I got but- I got to go to the customer site when this is done. So uh, two beers are not are definitely in, it is it is California. I'm not sure what's all legal right now. It's probably not on working hours. I think it's safe to say it's frowned upon in general to to drink on the job. But you know some some jobs are different than others. I suppose. I miss the 80s. <laughs> We're here with Brad Feeks from Estes Group talking about best of breed in digital transformations. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields, you get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 102. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out there. We are here in the midst of a transformation discussion involving uh, or, or covering best of breed in digital transformations here with Brad Feeks. Let's jump back into the conversation. And that is building on the lack of a single point of authority. Can you talk about the need for interop interoperability strategies when implementing a best of breed solution? So in other words, how do you make these system interoperable or how do you address that whole concept of making sure this, it just all works and it doesn't end up being a sort of a patchwork or a, a spaghetti bowl of, sure. of different systems? Well, I think she's talking there about a best of bread solution. So I'm, I'm yeah, high on pumpernickel myself. Uh, people in LA are absolute <laughs> foodies. So if I come to them and say, I just like plain wheat bread or something like that, they're not going to let me in the door. So I guess it has to be something like pumpernickel, something classy. Um, so right. interoperability. Wow. Interoperability is one of those words where you can charge your customer by the syllable. Uh, I think when I think about connection strategies between uh, applications, there's Certainly the, the deployment strategy concern first, how does this uh, third party get deployed? I think um, far and away, uh, these smaller solutions are, are perfect tailor fit for SaaS. Uh, while it can be hard to move a whole ERP system into a SaaS environment, individual best of breed modules quite often play very well in those spaces. E-commerce is probably one of your best examples where e-commerce over the past 10 years has rapidly moved into SaaS only environments to make that, you know, electronic commerce really, really hum. So it's kind of a natural fit. Um, in say BI solutions, I see a lot of sales oriented BI. BI and ERP seems to play in sales the most often because salespeople are dumb and need those really simple charts so that they have the pretty colors and the pie graphs. I'm in sales, so I'm allowed to say that. You can get um, away with it. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's one of the keys there is, is understanding how it gets deployed. Is this an application like a sales BI that needs to live inside of the environment or an application that can hook on externally? So as soon as you start talking about external hookups, the next concern you have is API performance. Because every time you abstract a level in your stack, right, you have your business logic layer. Underneath that, you have maybe your database layer. On top of that, you have this abstracted API layer, which is, you know, doing post calls and such like that. Uh, rest is a real fun one. Soap was a little uh, dirtier, which is ironic. But so you take that idea of the API layers, passing back that data and doing so efficiently at a level that's equal to or better than the base ERP functionality becomes a real concern to people. Because if you're in a transaction intensive environment, you might have a perfectly connected system that's logically great. But if, it, if it's slow as an, ox, as an ox cart in winter, this is going to be a problem. So um, how do you deal with those strategies? One is understanding kind of out of the base what kind of baseline performance expectations you can have. Uh, two and three and four are testing and making sure that you're doing adequate testing, not only for functionality, but also for load. Uh, I think in any of these cases, um, it's very easy to get the functional happy path made. And then when you don't realize is that when you take that happy path and you add a lot more pedestrian, suddenly that path becomes very crowded. Um, so I'd say that those are you know right out of the gate, a couple of things that I think about that would be, you'd want to be worried about when you jump into a, a best of breed deployment. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a theme we're seeing emerge here in the questions from the audience is, is more addressing some of the concerns. Cause I think, you know, some of the description that you gave of, you know, single ERP system or single enterprise wide system versus best of breed in theory or on paper, the single ERP system just makes a lot of sense. It's, it's mm -hmm. one system. You don't have to learn multiple systems. You, you have one single source of truth, all that stuff that you mentioned. 
But, you know, there's, I think it's in some cases, the benefits of single airpiece systems are a bit overstated. And so addressing some of these risks or concerns or, or trade-offs, I think is, is really helpful. And a related question is from Malcolm on LinkedIn. I asked the question, another question about best of breed. He says, with best of breed, how do you meet the challenge of coordinating the different system teams to prevent an island of system information? Where different teams pull in different direction or have different improvement focus or goals. So I guess in other words, how do you how do you bring together the data, the processes, the operations into sort of a unified, you know, a unified operating model, if you will, or technical model as well? How do you how do you do that, or what are some of the implications or considerations uh, as you think about that? Right, that's a good question. I was thinking about that very question this morning in the shower. I do all my best thinking there, um, and trying to think about how do you get uh, a single single source of data for a company that has a lot of disparate systems. And quite often, I think the easy call is BI, right? Oh, BI will solve that. Um, BI is one of those dump buckets where, where you can throw any of your problems into the BI bucket during an implementation with the assumption that BI is going to fix it all. Um, and in some cases, it does. Um, so being able to create a data warehouse and match all of your disparate systems in a single single data set or data view is a real nice, powerful thing to do. Problem, of course, is depending on size of your business and the skill sets within your business, who do you have that can construct, maintain, interpret, and work with that system? Um, so I would say that's you know out of the gate immediately. Business intelligence becomes kind of at the data level a place of solving that. Now at the process level, that's really where some of these things get to be harder and more time intensive. I would say that you have to bring in a lot of people and saying, hey, you're working with these same entities now. How do you want to treat these entities? How are we going to act against these entities? If your salespeople require some sort of, <coughs> excuse me, require, you know, a, a make to stock model so that they can look at stocking levels to present that information to their customer and manufacturing is looking to uh, address those models in a make to order, you're, you're realizing that the best of breed is actually surfacing business concerns that are unaddressed. So quite often this is, and, and pardon the metaphor, an opportunity to drain the swamp, right? And understand when you drain that swamp, you surface problems that the business has that the business truly would have no matter what. But now that you're trying to do something more ambitious, though, those problems become all the more surface. So I would say here now I'm coming from a business analyst background. So I love the process map and, you know, flow charts and putting that all together. I think really you need to do your block and tackle business analysis to your to understand, you know, what are your business requirements of each department? How do those map together? And then from a system flow standpoint, are you able to get those in sync or do you run into cases where there are fundamental difficulties? So it's a skill set that if you're going to be taking these things on, it's a skill set that you, you better hope you have in-house or, or easily able to acquire it to prevent, you know, um, the unspoken, right? Our fear is always not of the unknown, but of the unspoken stuff that you know, but you don't surface enough. And then it comes out and it bites you when you actually implement. And that's what business analysis in my mind is, is it's the art of the unspoken, taking those things out and putting them out on, on the table so that everybody can kind of stare at them and, and understand the realities there. Yeah, it's great. Great point. Well put. And I think one of the you know, one of the challenges that organizations often face or the, the trade-off that's often there is that from, just from a pure organizational behavior perspective, you have two schools of thought or two ways you could tackle a enterprise-wide digital transformation, whether it's best of breed or not. Um, you have sort of the top-down, you know, approach where you have more of the, at the corporate level, you're setting the overall, you know, vision and direction and you have a, a pretty clear, deliberate global digital strategy to tie this all together. 
And then that's something that usually takes longer. It takes, it's, it's harder to get alignment and get everyone on the same page. And it, it just is a slower process. And then sort of competing with that school of thought is you, you mentioned sales guys or salespeople, um, just using them as an example and continuing to pick on them because I'm a sales guy too. So I can, I can pick on our, our people or our, our types. But one of the, um, one of the considerations, if you're in a sales organization, let's say, and you, you have a, an immediate problem or pain point you're trying to solve with technology, you can go out and buy Salesforce or, you know, some CRM system to immediately tackle your problem without really having to consider, you know, what, what does the rest of the organization need? You know, as long as you can tie that data back to the rest of the organization, you can, you can move forward quicker in many cases and oftentimes at a lower cost. So I think that tension organizationally is where a lot of companies struggle is like, do we take that deliberate global view, top down approach to digital transformation, or do we let individual business units or functions sort of define what their technological needs are and move forward with it? Mm-hmm. And that tension, I think, is something that organizations struggle with. But what do you see in that case? I mean, with your customers and your clients, what is there a preferred school of thought or do you see oh boy. I've clear seen, advantages? Well, I've come in from a, a Lean Six Sigma background. Before I got into IT, I was in, in Lean Six Sigma. And especially in the lean world, it was very much a bottom up. The top line, you know, the, the folks at the top in a, in a perfect lean environment were empowering people to make changes, right? All right, we need to do better. I'm going to empower you to do better. I'm going to give you the tools to do better. Go run with it. And, and you have the power to change your business within this circumscribed space to do that. Um, and I liked that idea a whole lot, but I also saw a lot of cases where you empower people who don't have the tool sets to be successful. Um, it's really dangerous and can create mm-hmm. some ginormous disasters. Some of the biggest disasters I've seen in, in business process and system implementation are, are uh, putting people in kind of the, the Peter principle, right? Putting them outside of their you know, ability to, to achieve and empowering the wrong people. So the big challenge there. So there's a definite tendency to want to, out of a sense of control from a managerial perspective, to kind of oversee and, and kind of play the puppet master and have all those pieces on the chessboard. I don't know if a marionette could play chess or not. It'd be an interesting thing to watch. But the idea then would be that that you're overseeing that with that global vision. The problem with global vision, of course, is that it tends to be very myopic and it doesn't know enough granularity to say, oh, yeah, Salesforce is going to fit. As a guy who's moving off of Salesforce in three months, I get the idea that Salesforce may not be the best fit for every organization. So you could make a quick kind of pencil whip that decision, go industry best practice. And I mean, you've talked at, at length, Eric, about how industry best practices are often just more marketing jargon. So I think there's a big concern there that if you're doing a top-down approach that you're you're getting um, enough feedback loops at the lower level so that your top-down decisions are both informed and not going to uh, badly uh, jar up the, the, the folks who are impacted by that. Yeah, great point. And you, you sort of uh, open up another um, can of worms or Pandora's box, depending on how you want, how you want to look at it. Uh, but the the concept of of it, so we're talking largely about technology here, right? Whether you have single system or multiple systems, and that's on the surface what we're talking about. But if you dig deeper, what we're also talking about is the culture of your organization. What kind of culture is this going to drive? Because what one thing you see that we see that organizations struggle with is, you know, here's who we are today. Today we are a best of breed environment, and everyone's had a lot of flexibility. Let's say, and um, we've been pretty decentralized. We have not been a command and control type of organization. But then we grow to a point where we acquire all these companies and deploy all these different systems where it becomes a mess. And now we've got to figure out how do we drive additional scale and efficiency. And one of the answers or potential answers to that is let's replace all those best of breed multiple options with one single system that gives us a common operating model, which 
again, that's a technical decision, but it's also a cultural decision. Is that who you want to be? Is that the right answer for you as an organization? And so I think that's something that organizations oftentimes separate uh, erroneously. They separate the technical discussion from the cultural discussion. I think you have to look at both to see what is it you're trying to become and how will this technological option, whichever path you go down, how will that affect your culture? And is that aligned with what you're trying to do as an organization? Is that something you've seen or that resonates with you as well? Yeah, for sure. It's it's funny because it kind of recontextualizes the, the archetypal disastrous organization where everybody's managing stuff in spreadsheets and access database and right. Lotus notes. And they're, they're all kind of flowing together in a, in a big jumbled mess. I guess you could call that a best of breed or, or a worst of breed. I don't know what you want to call it, but <laughs> I think definitely when you deal with situations where you're taking away someone's access database, you know, I would say that I'm in a world where the access database is is kind of like the sacred cow, and you're, you're running into situations where folks are, ooh, I, I have such control here. I have all these things that I have that I don't have when you pull me into an integrated system or a, uh, uh, a not a single user system. So there's certainly a lot of cultural challenges that you're going to run into uh, whenever you're replacing that, that level of functionality. Because I know there's certainly in prior generations, a lot of applications that would have been counted as third party applications that uh, this goes back to my own background, where uh, a, a where maintenance management solution, uh, the maintenance department wanted to keep this maintenance management solution and integrate it with ERP for purpose purchases uh, for purchasing and inventory management, etc. Problem was it was sitting on an access database. And, you know, linking uh, an Oracle database to access is, is about as ugly as you want to get. So you run into these kinds of situations where uh, you might be empowering the department, but that department might be dragging everyone down. So if you can come up with some consistent set of principles and try to sell those basic principles of, you know, we need to be technologically in a forward looking manner that because they deal with physical technology all the time. If you tell them, well, you, what you have is sitting on something that's going to drag this whole piece down. This is just adding friction to the organization and you can sell them on the value of updated technology. Uh, yeah, I think that's key is starting with those basic principles and trying to, you know, trickle those down into the individual decisions. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, great point. Um, what about this? Here's, a, here's another related question, um, again, coming back to the concern or how do we address one of the potential deficiencies of a best of breed model. But in the best of breed model, do you have system integrators or implementation partners for each system? And then how does effective project management come into play for alignment and coordination? So in other words, you've got disparate pieces potentially or disparate technologies you're trying to deploy. Who deploys them? Is it one single party? Do you have multiple SIs or, or implementation yeah. partners? And on top of that, how do you coordinate all that and make it sort of a cohesive strategy and deployment plan? Yeah, that's a good one because uh, we feel that real personally because we're responsible for configuring a lot of third-party apps in the, in the work we do. So basically, uh, in our world, every every private cloud of ours ends up being a hybrid because we, we operate in a world where there are a lot of third parties. And quite often, the customer doesn't actually know how much they have that has is truly not part of the, the core system. Um, and we have to configure or connect systems that have already been configured. That's probably a way of putting it in so that we connect it so that it operates however it operated when it was originally configured in the original environment. Sometimes that's very hard to do because of the lack of information. And you really do need to bring the vendors involved. So to the original question about um, implementing initially, I would recommend that you're implementing 
uh, third-party systems, not all as a big bang. If you're trying to implement a base ERP system and five integrations at the same time, you're going to be a ball of spaghetti by the time you're done. It's going to be such a mess. Uh, so I try to keep core functionality, like essential implementation functionality. I'm in LA this week. We're implementing a system and we under, we kind of worked through that idea of how do you get the system to do just what it needs to do to go live so that you minimize that amount of complexity and risk and then start to build onto that structurally. Uh, I think in, in marketing, we call that the minimal acceptable product, right? What's that minimal acceptable product to get you live and get you moving? Um, so the fewer systems you try to implement in parallel, the better. I think that's a fair statement. That may not always be practically possible, but I think it's something you try to do. Now, in terms of vendor engagement, I think vendors are, are quite often, especially with these third-party systems, they don't have a deployment community as much as maybe an ERP would have. Their partner community is much smaller. Um, so pulling in the vendors is huge. Uh, even in, in our work with our with the migrations, getting the vendor involved is a, a great uh, asset to us. And we try to build good vendor relationships to keep that strong because uh, the first thing you know, from a cloud migration, the, the biggest thing that'll deploy you is a, a unresponsive or unhelpful vendor. Um, so yeah, the, you really want to be careful there. Uh, I'd say build vendor relationships early, keep them maintained as your system goes on. And yes, you probably will find that you're going to have to use them to do certain things in the application. And we do that all the time. We're giving access credentials to different vendors so that they can get in, do their stuff and get out um, so that we're not uh, an extra link in the chain when we're trying to implement these things. Yeah. And you really have to watch out for that potential finger pointing too. If you have, let's say three or four different implementers or implementation partners deploying different technologies, it's really easy. If there's a weak link somewhere in that chain, you know, one of the partners isn't as good as the others or is creating problems that are cascading to other parts of the transformation. It's really easy to just start pointing fingers. And then all, the, all of a sudden the question becomes, well, who's responsible here? I mean, you've mm -hmm. got, you know, three or four different parties, maybe too many cooks in the kitchen. And that's where it puts a lot of pressure or more pressure on the overall program management and, and governance of the overall project back to the, the original uh, question or point that Kyler was making. Um, so I think that's something to, to think about as well is just the, mm -hmm. the trade-off that, that goes along with that. And just recognizing that for the advantages you gain with best of breed potentially with having better point solutions that are presumably better fits functionally for that specific area, you've addressed that problem, but now you've created other problems now, which is back to the question, which is the coordination and the program management and governance, the architecture, you know, having a solid um, enterprise architect that can figure out how this all ties together is, is super important as well. Yeah, I think so. I, th I was thinking about this the other day, just in prep for this, how um, a best of breed approach, which seems to be the winning approach going forward, it really forces end users to have a much broader skill set um, than mm. they would have had to have had 20 years ago, and especially in worlds where IT departments are shrinking generally. I don't see trends that tell me that IT departments are growing, right? So the people right. who would traditionally be right in the middle of this trying to organize and make sure that you're organizing an implementation successfully so that you're minimizing finger pointing, right? Keeping transparency, et cetera. Those people are going away. Um, so what does that mean for other people in the organization? Do sales managers now need to have implementation skills, project management skills, business intelligence skills, all those things uh, start changing the nature of the work we're doing because we're, we find that those people on the peripheral of system implementation are getting pulled in, you know, more and more to help in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. Another dynamic too, that comes to mind is that 
you look at the strategies of some of these best of breed providers, and I think some of the strategies are further muddying the waters or are creating even a, a blurrier line between single system, single ERP system versus best of breed. And just as a couple examples, if you think about uh, Salesforce, we were talking about them earlier as well as Workday. Salesforce and Workday, Salesforce is historically a, a CRM or Salesforce automation type of system. Workday has historically been more of an HR technology sort of system. But in both cases, both vendors are sort of moving or branching out of their core functional focus and becoming more of an ERP-ish sort of solution. Salesforce has their force platform where you can have third-party developers creating all different types of solutions that can provide um, more broad ERP capabilities on the force platform. So Salesforce is sort of morphing into a potential ERP system and same with Workday. They're they started off as HR technology. They still are very good at that, but now they also do financials and other stuff too. So, you know, I think that further muddies the water too. It's, it's not, so it's not as black and white as it sounds as maybe we queued up this conversation to sound. There's a lot of gray area of, of, of sort of more hybrid or sort of like somewhere in between best of breed and, and single ARP systems as well. Oh, that's a funny, funny point you make, because uh, about a month ago, uh, Estes Group hosted a full day uh, third party webinar where for uh, Array was all circled around the uh, Epicor Profit 21 distribution ERP. So we brought in eight providers from the community, folks we had met at the conference and had drinks with. And after a few drinks, we decided we were friends. So we brought them all in the same room. And uh, everybody got a slot to present on an industry topic and do a little bit of uh, dog and pony show with their uh, own systems. And it dawned on me, none of these providers are providing single solutions. Many of them are providing multiple in the way you talk about that. So uh, a document, document management solution may also be providing AP automation. They may also be providing AR automation. Now, they're next to a credit card provider who is also providing AR automation. They don't have AP, but they have AR. And you keep going down the list, each of these providers is broadening their skill sets to the point where we tried to to basically come in and, and keep as little competition as possible between vendors to try to just keep the waters merry and realize that that was almost impossible to do because uh, because all these Venn diagrams started overlapping in strange ways that were unexpected. So you think that, that okay, we'll keep uh, our e-commerce e partners on separate sides of the table, but their offerings extend beyond e-commerce because they, they look at this say now, well, I've already built this integration platform for e-commerce. Why don't I stretch it out a little bit laterally and now I can make a global integration platform that any solution could use. And now you find that one vendor is using another vendor's tool set to provide their services and yes it becomes inbred in a hurry yeah and it's back to the point of coordinating across multiple vendors and multiple implementation partners sometimes what you see too is as that landscape evolves of what a vendor can truly do and how their technology tends to expand outside of their maybe myopic focus to begin with you start to get a lot of vendor that competition that you were uh, alluding to before that vendor competition where the you know one of the vendors involved thinks that you should be using more of their software and less of one of the other provider software and it becomes it can become messy and it and it can become um if, if you don't have a clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish and why you're doing what you're doing mm -hmm. you're going to become prey to the or victim to just whatever sales messaging happens to win out or um 
you know, whoever the best salesperson right. is going to be. And that doesn't necessarily align with what your business needs are. Sure. I mean, every every vendor has a land and expand strategy, right? I think that's pretty safe to say that that's just a, a yeah. business principle that we all abide by. And everyone's thinking, if I can get my foot in the door in this one area, hopefully I can yeah. branch out otherwise. And this kind of goes to Kyler's comment about uh, how do you know if an organization that a best of breed solution versus a full ERP system is right for them? I think really you're asking that same question all the time, whether it's a land and expand and get their foot in the door somewhere else, um, is really, what are your what are your requirements as a business? I think companies that find themselves going down bad paths, most often are the ones that least understand their own business requirements. It's all kept at an intuitive level. Uh, what, I, what I like about, say, guys like Third Stage, when you go in with a company and you flush that out, you really make people kind of answer questions about, what they are as a business. I, I'm working with a customer right now that um, transformed over the course of their ERP implementation from a pure job shop, custom shop to a, a much more standard uh, configure to order or make to stock, make to order model um, over the course of their ERP implementation, just because the ERP system itself surfaced all these questions that they hadn't asked about your business. So I think really understanding uh, what's the best direction to take really starts with a good understanding of what you need and then a good understanding of what the, the, the options are out there and how well they work to map to your systems. I'd say within, within any of these worlds, if a vendor really wants you to buy their product, they're going to go out of their way to try to demo their product solving your problems. And if you can come to them and help them understand what your problems are, I think you, you you shorten that distance to coming to a good, clear solution as to whether or not a, a third-party solution can handle what you need from them. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very well said. We're here with Brad Feeks from Estes Group talking about best of breed in digital transformations. We've got a lot more to cover. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 102. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out there. We are here in the midst of a transformation discussion involving uh, or, or covering best of breed in digital transformations here with Brad Feeks. Let's jump back into the conversation. Audience questions and comments here just to sort of validate or, or reconfirm what we talked about before. Um, this is from Ryan on LinkedIn. He says, in my experience, vendors love to pass off any tech connection data loss issues to other software vendors in the best of breed setup, which is what we were talking about earlier as well. Um, how do you handle quality assurance and tech, tech issues across the system that is mostly disparate in nature? And I think that sort of gets back to what we were talking about, which is the this came in around the same time as the other question came in, sure. uh, so similar to that. But 
that's where that project governance and having a you know having a PMO or some sort of overarching management of the different parties and the different applications as well as the enterprise architecture and integration and having that sort of central hub of program governance or program management and governance as well as architecture that is one way to tie that all together and mm-hmm. easier said than done of course but uh, that that is one one way to go about that for sure um, here's an interesting question that i think is more of a strategic where is the world heading sort of a question this is from youtube um and the question is, will giant ERP systems need to break up into multiple microsystems? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's interesting. interesting. Question. Yeah, that is. Um, boy, this goes back, again, back to the early aughts. Remember when service-oriented architecture was all mm-hmm. the rage and I spent way too much time trying to figure out what that actually meant, only to realize <laughs> that the only people who were writing about it were marketers and not actual technicians. That was a big waste of time. We shouldn't read. We should read much less than life. I'm a big believer in the in, 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 uh, no words in our life. Um, microsystems. Gosh, I see a lot of small providers that create micro micro uh, services for bigger systems. Now, should bigger systems themselves kind of break up themselves into a best of breed so that you could buy a SAP inventory management system that interacted with a, a true best of breed patchwork, right? So I only bought SAP for the inventory. Everything else, uh, I, I went elsewhere. That's an interesting thought. And uh, it was kind of tickling the back of my brain as we were talking whether or not ERP systems would configure themselves to go in that direction. I know they talk uh, a good game about it, but I wonder if ERP system, if vendors are, would, would find themselves encouraged to do that, if they would see that as a land and expand strategy, or if they would think they're giving away too much in, in apportioning that out. Uh, it'd certainly be a neat thing to see. Um, and I, I, I don't have any real world examples where a company's used an ERP system for just one tiny spot outside of maybe finance, right? Um, and those are normally failed implementations. So we, we, we were best of breed because we failed at everything else. So we only implemented finance. That, I guess right. you could count that, but you, you never really want to, not, not vocally anyways. Yeah, it's a great point. Some, you know, some deployments end up becoming best of breed when they were intended to be um, single ERP systems and, and vice versa too. Um, it's, a, it's a great point. And I think, um, I, I really do think though, back to a point I made earlier about the, the, it's almost like a political debate. You know, I think we could sit here all day and argue politics and probably neither one of us would win. And some people would agree with you. Some would agree with me. I think the same thing is true with best of breed and ERP. I think, you know, there's, there's strong arguments to be made for both sides, but not only that, but over time, the evolution and the tension between the two, I think it's just, there's so many distinct pros and cons and companies as they evolve and ebb and flow in their growth journeys are going to gravitate towards one or the other. And that, that pendulum is going to swing back and forth. So I just feel like it's one of those things that's just never going to go away. We're always going to have this debate, in my opinion, I think uh, so. because I don't see how you solve because you can't until some magical technology that I don't know about comes out that solves all the problems of both sides of the the spectrum. I don't, I don't see how the debate ever really settles itself. No, and I think the thing that stays um, current across this discussion is what you've talked about with governance, um, because it's kind of like in political world, we, we talk about kind of two different parameters. One's ideology and one's efficacy, right? You might, you might vote for someone because you like their ideology, but they're incompetent at what they do. So they're not even able to achieve their goals because of the lack of competence. Now, so right. I think what we can all agree on is that we want competent governors in our world, um, I would say that that is the idea in an IT system, whether or not you're going best of breed or you're going uh, single solution, you need governance inside of that. You need 
thoughtful management making those decisions and that applies you know across the board because either solution can be executed miserably if you lack those core government skills you know the things that we talked about business analyst skills you know, flowing data mapping, uh, test case development, execution, all those kind of nuts and bolts capabilities that go uh, are, are applicable regardless of the ideology. I think if you're missing those things, you're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And here's a question that sort of continues to build on the theme here of, of sort of the how to address some of the concerns with best of breed. This is from Sam on LinkedIn. And Sam says, with best of breed, do companies have to set and agree to rules that reduce the risk of decisions taken on one department impacting on others? For example, what if finance wants standard costing and operations wants actual costing? So that's sort of mm-hmm. a, sort of getting into the end-to-end business processes and the overall operating model of the organization. You know, do you, do you centralize some of that decision-making in the process definition, even in a best-of-breed environment, or do you, do you leave that as sort of a decentralized function by function or location by location set of decisions? What have you seen in that regard? Uh, When it's done successfully, there's always uh, a degree with, if not the decisions are centralized, the decision-making process is. When you're working in an ERP system, you're implementing, you run into those core critical issues. You throw those up on your critical issues list and you circle back on them quickly to say, hey, folks, uh, finance wants to go average costing, manufactured wants to go standard. Let's flush this out and come to a single agreement because in absence of a single agreement, you're going to have just a mess. So I think you really need, if we don't call it centralization, it's collaboration, it's communication, whatever kind of buzzword we want to stick on our our bumper is really in in its absence, you're going to create a a nightmare. So I like that idea of ground rules. It's kind of like when you get a core team together and you set the ground rules this is how we're going to operate this is what is acceptable what is and i think that's a great idea uh, to have those and to be kind of revisiting those ongoing yeah and i think it sam's question brings up another important point which is whether you're going with a single system a single arp system or a best of breed model or somewhere sort of in between you still have to define those end-to-end processes to figure out how it's all going to flow together and whether or not that's a centralized top-down command and control sort of imposition of, of new processes or whether it's done from the bottom up or however that's done is a different conversation. We could, we could spend a whole uh, live stream just talking about that. Um, but I think that's still something that you have to do. And, and best of breed isn't going to solve that problem and neither is a single ERP system. You still have to define those end-to-end process flows and know you know what, what basically what you want to be when you grow up. I mean, you have to right. define that so you can use technology uh, in that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and here's a, here's a comment from, uh, from Kyler again, project manifestos are critical for alignment. So project charter and, um, you know, having a solid unified project plan, all that stuff is, 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 uh, certainly, certainly important. Um, yeah. Whenever I hear manifesto, I start thinking Karl Marx and, and I was you know, just thinking that too. <laughs> yeah. Being a college sophomore and thinking that, yeah, no, we can keep going. It, it's because uh, we, I keep bringing up politics. And so it's hard there not to go. think uh, yes, when manifesto exactly. comes up, it's hard not to think of Karl Marx. Um, so what about, we haven't talked a lot about cloud deployment options, which, you know, may sound unrelated to best debris, but it is related. Let's talk about that for a minute. What are, what are some of the hybrid or, or what are some of the options available for cloud deployments, whether you're in a, best of breed environment or not? Well, okay. So from a foundation standpoint, you really have kind of three basic options. 
you have uh, software as a service, which is, and again, you can probably stretch that out in its extreme. It's completely vendor supplied um, without applications backend configuration. You're consuming it strictly as a client. Um, that would be software as a service. So it's deployed out in the cloud. You don't know where. It doesn't really matter to you as a customer. Um, that's one model of, of both cloud deployment and subscribing to the application. Because normally in, a, in this model, you're subscribing to the software on a monthly basis versus buying a perpetual license. Um, on the other side, you have your traditional on-premise licensure. <clears throat> in that case, you've bought the license. It's a perpetual license. You buy it once, you own it forever. You pay recurring support, but you own the software and you deploy it on a local box. Now, probably the center point in between that would be some version of private cloud where you take an on-premise license and you deploy it into a private cloud environment so that it's like an on-premise, except you're not dealing with all the hardware challenges that come with you know, building a, a data center locally. Now there are, are versions on either side which kind of float around that. You could co-locate where you own the hardware, but you don't own the data center, or you could have a private cloud SaaS where you subscribe to the license, but it's deployed into another uh, you know, uh, encapsulated environment. So the, the lines blur with all the different kind of sub options in between. Every time I talk to a new ERP vendor, um, they'll have different models. Some ERP vendors work through third parties to actually deploy. So I'm going to buy it from vendor A, but I'm going to deploy it through software provider B, even though it's a subscription because uh, the, the deployer and the vendor have some sort of relationship where they're paying each other for good graces and all of that. So uh, you know, contractually, you can divide this in a lot of different ways. The key is um, how you have it deployed affects how you can integrate with it. So if you're in a SaaS environment, a pure SaaS, where you're all web-based, essentially you're stuck in a situation where you're working through API layers in order to make connections. So you need to be cognizant of if I've bought a, a solution that's purely SaaS-based, my integrated systems need to be able to communicate at that level. Um, and, you know, vendors are, are kind of scrambling right now to build connection points that operate on multiple levels. So you have an, an on-premise or a private cloud version, and then you also have a API outside pure SaaS version. Uh, I think this is where I went back to the performance challenges because the vendors that I talk to struggle with pure API communication because the APIs aren't as uh, they don't, don't perform as robustly. So you end up with some of those challenges inside of there. But the, really, if you're if you're integrating, you're trying to mitigate security risk in your connections whenever possible. That's one of the benefits with a high-level connection, because if it's an API, a handshake, you know, a certificate-based handshake, that takes away a lot of the other risks in terms of getting access to lower levels of your system. So you definitely need to, I, I mean, really the biggest challenge right now quite often has to do with on-premise customers who find themselves getting ransomed because they have too many holes in their firewalls. And those are, they end up becoming our customers because they, they want someone else to manage that firewall level and start whitelisting and, and closing some of those portholes, et cetera, and be much more careful about what information can get through. Um, for me, that's probably from a security standpoint is, is an area that will be an ongoing concern for third-party integration uh, applications, because as, as hackers get better at masking their calls as vendor calls, and as, as custom, you know, hackers get better at knowing what software you're you're subscribed to, they can make their tar cars calls much more targeted, which is a little scary. 
Yeah. And, uh, man, you just hit a couple things we could spend, <laughs> we spend an hour on a couple of the things you just mentioned, but, um, the, uh, let's talk about, talk about cybersecurity just for a second. You know, you, the best of breed model, one of the vulnerabilities or potential vulnerabilities of best of breed is you could have tightened up security in, you know, 90% of your ability or some sort of breach. Now, suddenly you've exposed that breach and that breach now could potentially extend into other core systems. And I think that's what we've seen with some larger organizations that have had some major cybersecurity breaches is it wasn't their core system, their main system that was hacked. It was some third party bolt on that, you know, had weak security and they use that as an entry point to get to, you know, some of the core data of the organization. So I think that is something to, to think about. It's never, you know, a single ERP system doesn't solve all the problems, but I think you have more risk of that with a, with a best of breed model. Is that something that, that you've seen as well? I would say uh, decisively, yes. It's kind of yeah. like your ship is, if your ship is patched together from many pieces of steel that are welded together, you have a much higher chance of leakage. Right. Versus yeah. if you have a single sheet of metal, it's much harder to puncture through. And I think that that metaphor sticks. And, yeah, you want to be very careful that um, security concerns are part of this conversation because, yeah, it's very easy. Uh, I, I run into folks in the industry who get ransomed twice a year. And uh, it blows my mind that uh, companies are sometimes able to stay in business when they are this porous. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And I like that metaphor too. That's a, good, a great visual metaphor for um, some of the, the risks there. Um, I, I have one last question for you, Brad, just in the interest of time. But before I ask you this question, I have a question for the audience. If you could just drop in the chat, I'd love to hear or see sort of your knee-jerk reactions based on everything we've talked about so far and based on maybe what you already know about best of breed versus single ERP system. If you had to vote or choose right now, just drop in the chat. What what, what direction do you think is best? If you had to pick one right now, is it, is it best of breed or is it single single ERP or single system. I'd love to just sort of get a, a gut check here of uh, which which side of the debate might be winning or losing here, uh, just because I'm competitive like that. And I just like to know. Um, but while people are dropping that in the chat, we'll come back and kind of look at what how, how people respond to that question. Um, question for you then, Brad, is as people are, as organizations and people within the organizations are trying to determine which path is best for them and how do I get started on a digital transformation and I'm overwhelmed by all these different options and different directions I could go. Um, how do you how do you recommend that an organization get started on, on navigating this uh, decision and, and just getting started on their transformation in general? Well, I think it's the the idea there goes back to governance and finding uh, someone to help you with your process of governance. And if you have that organized, then you start as as a function of a, a healthy governance process. You start churning out what are the priorities that you want to start addressing. And from there, you find yourself in the software selection cycle. I think really critical there is finding folks who can help you uh, get through that cycle for each of these solutions so you don't find yourself going down you know, one, one path or another. So it starts with governance and it starts with good help. So if you've got an, uh, you know, folks internally who've gone through that, have those skills, great, leverage them. If you don't have those, I think you want to look outside and find folks uh, like Eric. I mean, you guys have done a very nice job helping folks through that. I've, you know, pulled you in at times when we need, you know, we need an objective view, you know, of the market and its options so that we're not taking someone down a pre-prescribed path. And uh, for that fellow there, no, I am not a butcher. I don't know if he's a butcher. I like Billy Butcher, the boys, good show. 
uh, I'll watch anything with Carl Urban in it, but no, I, I, I do not watch. I'm not, I'm not a vegan either. Somewhere in between, like we say, there's two poles, right? There's Billy Butcher on one side. There's, you know, radical veganism on the other. I think I, I fall somewhere in between. Yeah. I wasn't sure what that question, where that question yeah, was going, which is why I didn't pull it up. But since you brought it up, yeah, those are often the best. They, they often are. I just didn't know where to take that one. So I'm glad, I'm glad you saw that too in the, in the chat. Now, what's interesting, uh, just to sort of wrap it up, I think that's great advice, by the way. Um, you know, just getting that objective view of what the best direction is for you. Recognizing, I'd say first and foremost, recognize that neither one of these answers is perfect and you're going to have some trade-offs and it, it, it's it's going to be imperfect and there's going to be some pains of whatever decision you make that might make you second guess that decision. But I think the key is to really understand, go in with eyes wide open as to what those pros and cons are and also getting that objective unbiased view. Because I guarantee if you, if you're, let's just say you reach out to SAP, it, call SAP, call a sales rep and say, what should I do? Should I, should I implement S4 HANA across my entire organization or should I go with more of a best of breed approach? I can almost guarantee, and I would bet money, even though I hate betting and I never do bet, um, I would bet money that SAP is going to tell you a single ERP system. Absolutely. You don't want best of breeds. Terrible idea. Here's all the things wrong with it. Right. And they're going to sell you on sort of the, the slanted view of that. So I think you, you know, it's important to know that as an input, but you do have to recognize that there's uh there's a lot of bias in the industry based on whatever product or service you're trying to sell. Um, so having that objective and, and technology agnostic view is, is important. And that is to your point. Um, thank you for, for the shameless plug, Brad, but uh, that is something that my company does, which is third stage consulting. That's something we do to help clients through the, through the process. Now going to the responses here, I'm actually a little surprised by it. I'll be honest. I thought in my mind, I thought we'd probably get an overwhelming, uh, response that single system is the way to go. Um, just because we've spent a lot of time here today talking about some of the weaknesses and deficiencies that need to be addressed in the best of breed model. But I think a slight majority, if I'm just, this is not scientific, this is just me scrolling through the comments, I'd say a slight majority is probably leaning towards best of breed. Um, but my favorite response from someone who knows me very well is uh, Kyler says it depends. And I totally agree with that, by the way, that would be my vote is uh, I can't choose one or the other. It depends. Um, and being a consultant too, I don't have an organization that I'm trying to, you know, deploy or make this decision for other than our clients. And with our clients, it does depend, but I'm curious, uh, it's curious to see people that are in organizations that are maybe considering technologies, which, which sort of, uh, knee jerk reaction they have there. Um, so I guess maybe I'll ask you, Brad, what, if you had to choose, what would you choose? What do you think the best answer is? Uh, if, I know it does depend, but if you just had sure. to make a blanket statement and stereotype or whatever generalization, yeah. what would it be? If I had to choose, I would choose an ERP system. So I would go single system with a vendor who is uh, an ERP vendor that is constructed for integrations mm. to allow me to do my, so another way of saying, I probably like the, the lowercase b. I like a, a centralized system that is bolstered by third-party systems. So I'd want to make sure my centralized systems is really conducive to that. You know, are they building a, a robust REST API? Do they already have it built? How uh, how does it scale versus regular business process? You know, ask those questions of your vendor because then if you if you find a single vendor as your single point and you don't need to expand, okay, you got your one system. If you feel you need to, now you can branch out and expand and, and kind of pick and poke as needed. So that. That's my, my middle path through all of that. Yeah. You're hedging, you're hedging your bet. I like it. You're, you're, you're sort of saying it depends without saying it, it depends. You're, you're just exactly. taking, that, taking that middle ground there, which, which I like. And I think that's a fair, probably a good approach and maybe a good starting point for a lot of organizations to start sort of in the middle there and maybe a lean, you know, the, the spectrum, you lean one way or the other, depending on, you know, what your needs are and, 
your uh, what it is you're trying to drive from an organizational perspective. So it's a great point there. All right. Thanks, Brad. Great to have you on the show as always. One of my favorite repeat guests, and I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll have him on the show. So thanks very much for being here today. Uh, we've got a lot more to cover. We're going to talk a little bit more about this best of breed concept and unpack it a bit here uh, with Kyler and I. We're going to take a quick break, though, and then we'll come back and do that. So you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 102. Uh, you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world, whichever platform you listen, whether it's Spotify, Amazon, uh, Google, wherever you listen, Apple, be sure to subscribe to us there as well, if you don't already. Um, so we just had Brad on the show, Kyler, talking about best of breed and digital transformations. What were some of your takeaways from that that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So just a reminder um, quickly to the audience, that's one of our live streams that Eric hosts each Tuesday. So if you'd like to be notified when these are coming, um, you can go ahead and fill out the form in the description link of wherever you're getting this episode and we'll remind you of when um, we're going live with these guests. It's really fun to be able to engage with other audience members as you see Eric reference questions. You could also go back. We live stream them um, every Wednesday and we engage there too. So just a reminder, and an invite to kind of join us in those live sessions. But as always, both of you never disappoint. Um, and I think it's a really interesting episode that I kind of wanted to tie back to another conversation that you had with Brad about outsourcing IT when it comes to when should you outsource, when should you not, kind of building off of our conversation earlier in this episode and marrying those two. So when it comes to a best of breed solution, it seems like there is a strong need for uh, a very sophisticated IT infrastructure to be able to connect the data management, the overall cloud hosting, all of those other um, competencies that are really needed. Do you need a bigger, more robust IT department if you're looking at a best of breed solution? And to build on that as a secondary question, is that something that maybe you could potentially outsource if you if you don't want to run into a huge failure like Southwest might be, have benefited from that? Yeah, I, I think um, best of breed does to some degree put more pressure on your internal IT group uh, just because you have more to maintain, you have more to manage in terms of integration, um, data flows, um, more just more applications that you're managing. So yes, I think it does add a bit more cost and pressure to the IT organization, which that's a really good point because we didn't talk about that with, with Brad or we didn't get to that topic. Um, and to your other point though about how to how to tie it all together by the way before i jump ahead here 
one other thing is it also puts a lot of pressure on the enterprise architect or the ar enterprise architecture role too, because now you've got to figure out how the, all these systems are going to tie together. And the more systems you have, the more important that enterprise architect role is. But as it relates to sort of that PMO role or the program management role, and how do you, how do you implement technologies, multiple technologies, and how do you do it in a cohesive way that ties it all together? Um, that's where independent third parties that are not affiliated with any one of the software vendors is, is super important. And it's important in any sort of implementation, but especially best of breed types of scenarios, because you, you know, when you get that many cooks in the kitchen with multiple vendors, now all of a sudden you get vendors that are pointing their fingers at each other and blaming the other vendors technologies for any sort of process breakdown or delivery performance issue, whatever the case may be. So having a a strong PMO function and one that's supported by an independent technology agnostic advisor like through stages is something that can be uh, very important in a great way to mitigate that risk. That's, that's, you know, really interesting. And in, in the fact that there, there's not only a need for a PMO, but it seems like an overarching strategy to have the systems work together and, and talk to one another. Uh, it seems it's kind of ironic that the, the movement towards best of breed has now created this opening for a niche of an integration system or an interoperability overall management um, and a digital enterprise strategy, as opposed to just an ERP resource strategy. Is that something that you've kind of seen as an evolution in, in moving towards best of breed solutions? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I couldn't help but notice you asked that question from behind the scenes during the the interview with, with Brad, but yeah, or, or a question related to interoperability. And that is super important is, is, you know, having that vision and that blueprint and that architecture to bring this all together into one cohesive solution is a challenge. And that's why a lot of organizations are afraid of best of breed because of that. They'd rather just have one software vendor that just has the answer for them, even if it's not the right answer, at least it's integrated. At least you don't have to worry about as much integration. Maybe you don't have as many um, implementation issues because now it's just one system, even though, as Brad mentioned in the discussion, even implementing one single ERP system isn't really implementing one system. It's still multiple modules. A lot of times it's multiple bolt-ons to fill in the gaps or the holes that the ERP system can't support. So it's, it's a little bit overstated to say that uh, single ERP systems don't have that problem, but maybe the problem isn't as severe uh, with integration. So I, I think it's a great point. Is open source the kind of the marriage between ERP and best of breed solution with their module based approach or what's your thoughts on that? That's a great question. Um, should have asked Brad while he was here. Still, we should have asked him. I that. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's I don't know if it's a, right. Yeah. Let's see if we can get him on the line here. Um, get him back on. Um, no, I was going to say that I don't think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a direct answer, but it's a, it's a, it's an alternative. Um, so in other words, it doesn't, you know, it's sort of like a, it, it's different, you know, it's, you've got single commercial off the shelf, sort of the more, call it the more rigid ERP systems. You've got best of breed. And I'd say open source is sort of like a middle ground there because they are in many cases an ERP system. Like you look at Odoo or ERP next. Um, those are two, two of the leading open source ERP providers, they provide broad and end ERP capabilities. They, they do provide different modules, like a more of a modular approach. Um, and the open source piece of it, I think just allows you to, um, extend the functionality or change the functionality in more powerful ways than you could with either best of breed or, um, off the shelf or, uh, single ERP systems. 
Um, I think the modularity that you're talking about, I think a lot of that has to do with the architecture or the design of the software. So like Odoo, for example, they, they tend, that's an open source provider that has more, um, it's just more modular in that you can have standalone point solutions operating on their own without necessarily having to have all the other modules working or implemented as well. And the same cannot be said for like SAP in, in all cases or Oracle or Microsoft, for example, although they do have some standalone systems like CRM and human capital management and whatnot, but in general, they're integrated solutions, which is good. That's what a lot of organizations want. But when it comes to just making a change or rolling out one piece of functionality, now you've just created a lot of complexity because now you've got all the other stuff you've got to deal with, even though you're not deploying that other stuff right away. Absolutely. And it, it sounds like kind of the thesis that you and Brad um, kind of talked about and what you're saying now is it's so important to understand your phase zero or your target operating model or your requirements as an organization in order to know, is it open source? Is it best of breed? Is it a full ERP suite? That's really going to be your key to unlocking what's going to be most successful and maximize the overall technical business value. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very much so. Well, good. Well, I know that we're going to kind of go into your next video, which talks about why overall digital transformations fail. And I think following these steps that you lay out in this video will really help with kind of the first part when you, you acknowledge that there's breakage in your IT system or there's inefficient processes or there's outdated technology, going through these different pieces and ensuring these are almost your strategic landmarks or beacons, if you will, um, are going to ensure you fail. So this episode, we didn't want to be fully pessimistic in moving into the new year. We wanted to actually give you actionable insights on on how you can make sure that your um, digital transformation or any imp or technology implementation upgrade, anything like that, these can be really applied to each sort of change throughout the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we'll shift gears. We'll play you a clip from a YouTube video that I posted a while back talking about the root causes of why implementations fail, and then we'll unpack that uh, in a bit more detail. So first, though, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll come back and play that clip and talk about why digital transformations and why software implementations fail and what you can do about it. But first, we'll take that quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 102. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. We're talking about uh, why implementations fail is our next segment here. And uh, what we wanted to do to really set up this conversation is play you a clip of a YouTube 
video that I have on my YouTube channel that talks about the root causes of why implementations fail. And then we'll sort of unpack it and dive into it a little bit more uh, when we come back. So let's play that clip right here. Digital transformations face a number of risks during any sort of project and during any sort of change initiative. There's some common patterns and threads that lead to failure. And there's also some common patterns and threads that lead to success. So what I want to do today is talk about those top 10 points of failure or causes of failure that you need to avoid before you embark on a digital transformation journey. Number 10 on our list is poor project management. If you don't have the right project governance controls and the overall project management in place, it's going to be easy to lose track of your scope. You're going to go over budget. Timelines are going to slip. You won't have accountability for success in the project. A whole host of different symptoms result from not having good project management and good overall program governance. So one of the things you can do to avoid this risk is to make sure that you either leverage your internal PMO to set up a strong project governance and project management framework, or if you don't have that sort of competency in-house, make sure you leverage outside help, ideally independent third-party help, to help you through that whole project management project governance work stream. One word of warning here is you don't want to defer to your systems integrator and assume that your systems integrator or your software vendor is going to handle the program management because ultimately this is your project and the system integrator and software vendor are only addressing one work stream within that project. So you need a competency to manage the overall program, which includes but is not limited to the technology work stream. So make sure you have this project management and program governance framework in place to ensure that you avoid this risk on digital transformations. Number nine on a list is poor risk mitigation, which is similar to the previous point about project management and project governance, but a little bit different. Technically, it is part of program governance, but the other part of it is the art of identifying and proactively addressing risks before they become such a problem that you can't overcome them. Most risks and most problems during digital transformations don't just happen overnight. They tend to percolate and bubble underneath the surface until they blow up and become a big problem that's very hard to reverse at that point. So what you need to address this is skilled outside resources that can call it like it is and help you recognize where the risks are, what mistakes you might be making without even realizing it, and helping you mitigate and get ahead of those risks before it becomes too late. Coming in at number eight on our list is a lack of project planning and a lack of implementation readiness. And the reason this is such a big problem is because organizations tend to get really excited when they've defined a new roadmap, they've picked new technology, they've identified who their partners are gonna be and helping them implement that technology, and they wanna just jump in and start building and deploying stuff. And without having a clear vision of what it is you are going to accomplish, how you're gonna get there, what your business processes are gonna be, how you're gonna manage the organizational changes. If you haven't addressed these and other aspects of your implementation early on, you're just gonna start spinning your wheels and spending a lot of time and money on wasted efforts that you're gonna to have to rework later. So by taking the time upfront to make sure that you have a solid project plan and an implementation, sort of a phase zero for your implementation, that's gonna allow you to take the time to make sure you have a solid blueprint and architecture for what this digital transformation is gonna look like, how you're gonna manage it, how all the different parties involved in the project are going to contribute to it and ultimately help you be more successful and help you have more accountability and ownership for the overall digital transformation. Number seven on our list is deferring too much to technology. 
It could be that you're deferring to one single ERP system to solve all of your problems and to sort of be that silver bullet to address your needs. Or it could be that you have multiple technologies you're trying to deploy and you're going to leverage those technologies to defer to them to identify what business processes you're going to deploy as an organization. Now, there's some truth and merit to this. You do want to leverage the capabilities, the competencies, and the workflows inherent in the technology, primarily so you don't have to customize the technology. But you also don't want to defer so much to the technology that you have no vision and no clarity of what it is you want the software to accomplish for you. One reason this is so important is because today's modern enterprise technology is so flexible when you compare it to 10 or 20 years ago that you have a multitude of different options and decisions that need to be made just to deploy the technology the way it was built. So if you don't have a clear vision of what it is you want to get out of the technology, and you're just assuming that the technology is going to tell you how to run your business, what will end up happening is one of two things. One is that you're going to be paying by the hour for consulting resources to wait for you to make your decision on how you want to run your business, or worse yet, the outside third parties, the consultants or the software vendors will decide for you how you're going to run your business, whether or not it fits your longer term objectives or not. So the key here is to make sure that you have a clear vision of what you want to be when you grow up, which goes back to the previous point about having that solid project plan in the implementation readiness phase, the phase zero of your project. This is one of those activities that you need to address in that phase to mitigate this risk. Another challenge and risk that digital transformation teams often face is an over-dependence on the technical implementers, whether it be the value-added reseller, the software vendor themselves, or a system integrator. By deferring too much to them and assuming that they're going to run the project for you, you're missing out on a lot of things. First of all, you're missing out on the scope of what needs to happen to make your project successful outside the realm of technology. Systems integrators and software vendors are good at building technology and deploying technology, but they're not good generally at deploying organizational changes, process improvements, project governance and risk mitigation, overall architecture and integration. Those are things that need to be addressed by someone else other than the technical implementer. So the key here is to recognize that the technical implementer plays an important role in your digital transformation, but if you defer too much to them or solely to those parties, you're gonna miss out on all the things that will ultimately make your project successful or more of a failure. The next risk to be aware of and to mitigate with your digital transformation is the phenomena of absorbing too much risk in too little time within your organization. You think about all the capabilities and the new functionality that software vendors are creating every day. And these oftentimes are light years ahead of where most organizations are, and they're only accelerating the pace of change in these technological capabilities. The problem is most organizations can't keep up with that pace of change. You may aspire to, you may be trying to be more nimble, more agile, and adapt to change more quickly. But for most organizations, they're stuck with inertia. They're stuck moving slowly as they have in the past. And while they'll try to change that during a transformation, oftentimes what happens is organizations will bite off more than they can chew during their digital transformation. They'll buy too many software modules or too many different technologies that they're not ready for or that they simply can't absorb in the time frame they've defined for their digital transformation. So the key here is to be self-aware and understand where you are as an organization and how quickly you can realistically change. And it's always a bit easier to speed up if you find that you're absorbing the change quicker than you thought, which by the way is extremely rare. We don't meet many clients, if any, that ever say that. But let's just say worst case scenario, you find that you're changing faster and you're absorbing the changes faster than you thought you could, it's always easier to speed that up than to try and take on and bite off more than you can chew and just setting yourself up for failure. 
So one of the keys is to be very deliberate about how much change you're willing to take and when you're willing to make those changes. The next risk to be aware of is unrealistic expectations. Too many organizations go into a transformation thinking that they can deploy technology in say 18 months, when in fact and in reality, they were never going to deploy those changes in 18 months. It was always gonna be more like three years. Not because they didn't manage the project successfully or not because the project wasn't effective, but because most organizations have trouble changing. Back to my previous point about absorbing change within an organization. So when you have unrealistic expectations about how long a transformation will take and or how much time and money it's going to take, what ends up happening is you end up cutting corners later on when you realize finally that you have banked on these unrealistic expectations. So you find that you're behind schedule or you're going over budget, or you're trending outside the parameters of what plan you have in place, you end up cutting corners. You'll start to cut things like change management. You'll cut some of the training. You'll cut a couple cycles from conference room pilots. You'll not integrate those systems that are core or critical to your business. You'll start to make bad decisions, not because you want to, but because you have to, and you're boxed into a corner now because you've drawn a line in the sand for an unrealistic timeline and or an unrealistic budget. So the key here is to be realistic, go in with your eyes wide open, understand what exactly this transformation entails, and also understand realistically how quickly can you as an organization change and how realistically can you as an organization deploy different types of technologies and process changes. Number three on our list of digital transformation risks is poor change management. In other words, you don't manage the organizational changes that are happening as a result of your digital transformation, or you don't do so effectively. Oftentimes what happens is organizations think that by doing some training for end users shortly before go live, doing some newsletters and emails prior to go live will be enough to get people ready for change and to get them comfortable with the change. But the reality is that's only scratching the surface. You really need to do a lot of legwork prior to any of that stuff happening on the training and communication side. You need to do things like organizational design to define how people's jobs are gonna change, how their roles and responsibilities are gonna change. There's also change impacts, understanding how different people within the organization, different work groups and different business units are going to be impacted by the changes entailed by this transformation. And another example is the organizational readiness assessment, really quantitatively and qualitatively measuring how ready the organization is for change and adjusting to and defining a change management strategy that addresses those organizational readiness results. So these are just a few examples of the things that need to be packed into your organizational change strategy. But the key here is to recognize that most organizations we work with, if not all of them, find that change management is more difficult than they ever thought it would be. So if you go in with that expectation and take the time upfront early on to define your change strategy based on your needs, your culture, and where you're headed as an organization, that's gonna make it more likely that you address this important critical success factor for a digital transformation. The second biggest risk we see with organizations going through digital transformations is a lack of internal alignment. In other words, we're not all on the same page. We're not rowing in the same direction. We're doing our own thing. We're going in different directions or we have different visions of what this project should be and what this transformation should entail for our organization. We have to get on the same page. It's normal to have some level of misalignment, but we have to get on the same page before we start the transformation Otherwise, we're gonna be spinning our wheels and wasting a lot of time and money and morale to try and get on the same page. 
And so if we can spend the time up front getting on the same page and having clarity around what it is we want to get out of this project, how we define success, what some of the key parameters and decisions are for the transformation, that's just going to make things a lot easier later on. So one way to look at this or think about it is if we take one step back, that's going to allow us to take two steps forward in the future. And rather than just rushing into the transformation when we have misalignment and instead focusing on really addressing that misalignment, the core root cause of that misalignment, that'll help us speed things up later on. That'll actually make our transformation go faster and cheaper than it would be otherwise. The single most important risk and the most damaging risk that organizations face when going through digital transformation is a lack of strategic clarity. They don't have a clear sense of what it is they want to get out of this transformation. They haven't defined how this digital transformation supports their larger and more strategic longer term goals and objectives. And they certainly haven't made some of the key decisions that need to be made to set the parameters and guardrails for the transformation. So one of the first things we do when working with clients, in addition to helping select the right technology for them, is to also, as part of their implementation upfront, is to define what it is they want to get out of this project. What are the strategic goals and objectives for this project? And how does that translate into specific parameters and criteria and guidelines for the transformation and the overall digital strategy? Instead, what typically happens is software vendors come in with their one size fits all proposed project plan that doesn't align with what it is you're trying to accomplish strategically. So this process of reconciliation between your strategic goals and objectives and what your software vendor and your system integrators have proposed is a really important activity that will create a lot of tailwinds later on rather than causing you to face headwinds. So the number one thing you could do if you had to pick one thing on this list is make sure that you have strategic clarity and articulation of where it is you're headed and how this transformation will help you achieve those goals. So these are the top 10 biggest risks that you should be aware of in any digital transformation. For more information and best practices on how to make your digital transformation successful, I encourage you to download our digital transformation report, which is an annual report that we publish each year with a number of best practices, software reviews and rankings, and other lessons to help you make your transformation successful. So I encourage you to download that white paper. I've included a link below, and I've also included a link to other resources that I think will help you through your digital transformation journey. Okay, so that is a clip from my YouTube channel talking about why implementations fail and why digital transformations fail. What were some of your thoughts there or follow-up questions from that video, Kyler? Well, I know you spent the most time in that video talking about misalignment in the organization. And that's a concept that I really struggle with because it seems as though misalignment can be not only something that might happen for different conflicting agendas in the beginning of digital transformation, but needs to be really maintained, harvested, and monitored throughout the overall project. And that can be something that seems very, very hard to achieve and almost in a gray area of who is responsible for that alignment and how do you receive that commitment? So I wanted to see if you could maybe kind of elaborate on maybe the tactical approach to that. Yeah. So in we I think we touched a little bit on this in our, our discussion with Brad earlier in the show too, you know, how do you get that executive alignment and, and the clarity and vision and all that stuff? Um, and that is, you know, if you don't have that clarity and vision and that alignment, that that's going to create a number of headwinds and it's going to throw a wrench into the engine of your of your business uh, and your transformation if you don't have that alignment. So really, one of the key things is really to start at the top. And, you know, a lot of times organizations, you know, in today's day and age, it's more in vogue to talk about the more democratic approach to leadership and the servant leadership, the bottoms up leadership, all that stuff. 
I'm not going to dismiss that and say that that stuff's not relevant, but when it comes to something like setting the vision and a new direction or an enhanced direction for your organization, that has to come from the top. You can listen to others. Obviously, you can take input from the rest of the organization, but someone at the top has to make that decision that this is the course we're on and this is the direction we're going and let's you know get on board and let's go. So you need that you need some level of top-down leadership and that is true for leadership in general, but especially when you're going through change like a digital transformation. And you know, you're not going to get everyone on board just by being the CEO that tells everyone you're going to do it whether you like it or not. That's not going to be that's not what I'm suggesting, but what I am suggesting is you want to understand um, you know, the different stakeholders that you need to get aligned. You need to understand where they're coming from, what their wants and needs are, and ultimately ideally get their buy-in into whatever direction you want to go. And worst case scenario, if you can't get their buy-in, you, at some point you still may have to move forward and say, got it. I understand you don't like it, but this is the direction we're going. Mm-hmm. And I think with management styles and, and the way they're teaching management leadership in schools and in academia and in, in organizations in general, uh, I think organizations are becoming more afraid to do that because it's not cool. It's not cool to be top down and to be command and control, yeah. but sometimes you have to be in, in, in some select cases. I'm not saying you do it all the time, but, and, and obviously it depends on the uh, culture of the organization. So I think that's where you start is you start by having a clear vision. And then there's a series of decisions that you need to make as part of your digital strategy. As far as, for example, do we go with the best of breed system back to the discussion with Brad earlier in this episode? Um, do we go with the best of breed uh, approach or do we go with a single ERP system? And then also within that, understanding what the trade-offs and the pros and cons are of each path, making a deliberate decision of what is best for your organization, understanding what the risks of that decision are, mitigating those risks, and making sure that everyone understands why you're going that direction. So there's a lot to it, and there's a lot of legwork that has to happen up front in order to get it. It's not quite as simple as just saying the CEO or CIO saying, this is the direction we're going, and let's get on board. So there's a lot more to it than that. Absolutely. And I'm sure the, you know, um, top up leadership approach is very difficult when you're trying to secure a multi-million dollar budget. <laughs> so right, that, right. that can be kind of difficult without um, executive buy-in. Um, but it definitely is something that, again, that that PMO, that project management and just monitoring that um, and securing that is, is so important. Um, something else you touch on, which I think is a really easy mistake, if you will, to make, is letting the technology drive the overall implementation or the digital strategy. Because I feel like it's very easy to say, okay, this is a tough project. We have a vendor that came in. They can check all the boxes. They can do it. Thank goodness, kind of hands off. We'll see it when it's done type of thing. Um, and that can be a really dangerous way. And we see that a lot in our expert witness work with our expert witness team here at Third Stage for reasons in which you you might go to court with your um your vendor partners which hopefully you never experience but does happen right yeah yeah absolutely that is very it is it's more common than you think and it's becoming more more common that you see these sorts of failures too well i'd love to kind of just go to the comments kind of rounding out this overall conversation about why digital transformations fail so if you could um in the comments just pop in some of the reasons in which you feel like digital transformations fail um we'll go ahead and and address those we pull those comments and a lot of times if you don't follow eric on TikTok, he does address those comments um with little kind of micro videos that are always a great uh, asset to kind of ask him questions um but overall great video eric thank you for sharing sharing those, those overall key learnings with us and a good round out to end the episode on a positive note. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the whole idea here. You know, the opening segment where we talk about legacy IT failures, this closing segment where we talk about uh, implementation failures. The reason we do this is to, to learn from it. You know, it's not to say you should be scared and be very afraid, that sort of thing. It's more to say, this is what happens when you don't do certain basic best practices. And here's what you can do to be successful and to avoid those challenges. So that's really why we're doing it. So hopefully it, it helps accomplish that. And I'd love to hear your comments below. Why do why do transformations fail? If you've been a part of a troubled or failed implementation in the past, what are some of those reasons? I'd love to hear your comments below. And uh, who knows, maybe we can get to some of those in, in a future episode of the show as well. So I uh, want to thank you all for listening here today. Uh, thank you for being here again, Kyler. Thank you for the great uh, content here and uh, look forward to seeing you all next week. Uh, be sure to check out new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We stream every Wednesday morning in the U.S., which is uh, afternoon in Europe and uh, later at night, Asia Pacific time. So wherever in the world you're listening, be sure to check us out there. And you can also find new episodes on audio podcast platforms like Apple, Google, Amazon, et cetera. You can find those every Wednesday as well. So be sure to check us out, subscribe to us. And if you want to go back and listen or watch older episodes, you can uh, go back to uh, our YouTube channels, which uh, have, have playlists that have all the past episodes. One that you might want to check out is episode 100, which is the best of 2022. So if you missed some episodes in 2022, you can hear the top 10 interviews of 2022. You can check that one out. Uh, but in general, you can check out all the past episodes on YouTube or the audio podcast platforms as well. So thank you for listening. Hope you have a great week and we'll see you next time on Transformation Ground Control.